0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: They say you can't judge a book by its cover. At the Folio Society, we don't agree. Our beautiful books are all hardback and come with a slipcase, illustrations and gorgeous covers. At the Folio Society, we've something for everyone. From Pride and Prejudice, to Dune, Charles Darwin, to A Game of Thrones. If you love books, you'll love Folio, the perfect gift. Order now at foliosociety.com and get $10 off when you use the promo code PODCAST. Conditions apply.
2: is the starship sova everybody welcome hello and welcome to oral delights 160 i am your host tony c smith How is everyone doing? It is getting very little bit, a little bit cold now in the mornings, yes. Freezing brass monkeys, it's starting to happen. First frost a couple of days ago, so we're going into that slide on this side of the earth anyways, into the kind of, the winter decline there. Oh God, I don't like it at all. Big old soft sod, I have, like me heating, <laughs> like me duvet covers. Anyways, what's going into today? Sure, it. Man, this is why, I'll I'll give you the lineup in a second, but this is why, or this is what I want to listen to when I want science fiction. Now, I'm so proud, you know, week in, week out, we can get this kind of lineup. First off, we have a little chat with myself and Dee. Just, you know, it's all kind of finished for us, myself and Dee, you know, the hard work's kind of finished. And we're just really sitting back now on with laurels, are we? Have a listen to myself and Dee. Then we have Film Talk by our good friend, Rob Barnett. Next up is a fantastic little interview with the writer of the main fiction today. We've got an interview with James Morrow, no less. Then we have the main fiction by James Morrow, Bigfoot and the Bodhisattva, which is fantastic. And it's narrated by none other than Larry Santoro, so Larry Excellent stuff. So that's great there. Just a little bit of interview with James and then straight into the main fiction. Then comes up, Larry spills all on how he actually came about narrating this story and what it took to kind of get this story in narration format as well. So look out for that as well. Then we have J.J. Campanella with his Science News for October. Next up is the third and final part of Jason Sanford's Sublimation Angels. Do look out for that. Then we have, if you notice, this is the end of the month. This is the month where we have the art show as well. Have a look at the art cover for James Morrow's story. (laughs) It's just amazing. It is by Ben Wooten. Ben Wooten did a bit of art for us the Langdon Jones to have him to hold story Ben has done stepped out stepped up to the mark and just done a fantastic artwork for that we have Ben on the line as well just to have a little chat about Ben and who is Ben you know this guy's work for Wet Are and all sorts Lord of the Rings and what he's up to there now and last but by no means least there's a little promo for Enemy Lines do listen out for that that is Oral Delight show 160 <laughs> if there's anyone there who's sitting who's got fantastic headphones on and who's really listening you might kind of feel this echo or this kind of vibration in in me words well I can hear it actually now and it's just because I've got my daughter's drum kit right next to us I can feel the kind of vibration so if anyone's thinking what's all that going on with Tony that's the reason why alas we are putting it up on eBay she fell out with it you know <laughs> we're not going to be millionaires by a rock star daughter so oh. That's why you can, if you can, you can hear those little. I can feel them tingling all over. Anyway, there. Did you hear that one? <laughs> I had a chat with D, and I just, like I say, I wanted to have a, a chat with D because, like, see, we now with volume two, it's all really put to bed. Apart from the kind of the nice bit where D gets to, you know, get the signatures from the big ones and puts them together. But apart from that, you know, all our work's done. So we're kind of sitting twiddling our fingers. Well, that's what well, that's what I am anyway. So I want to have a little chat with D. He's there. He's at work. He's slying a phone call away from work. D, are you are you still there? I am still here
3: now. Hopefully nobody nobody
2: over oh, listening to this phone call. <laughs> just pretend you're talking to your wife. Go on now, you're going to just go and just say, Darling, I love you. Go on see it. Uh, uh, Tony. <laughs> let's
3: keep, let's keep that off the yeah. air.
2: <laughs> so, D, you finished. Well I, finished. You're nearly finished. Aren't you? You've got to do a few bits of gluing and sticking, but that's that's done...
3: Well, we have to wait for those uh, the 25 special editions to come out and then uh, a bit of gluing, sticking, cutting out and uh, reposting. But that's, that's not a huge job. Uh, the, the, the big job was actually putting the, the book together initially. So uh, I think we're doing well on the sales of the, the, the 25 uh, special editions. they are nearly all gone at this
2: stage, aren't they? We? Well, I've got, I think there's about 12 left to go, I think. So fingers crossed they will go because that's, you know, that just so helps as well. So
3: Absolutely,
2: yeah. What D, what's uh, it for you then just you know you can't, it's all finished there now what's what was see like, it like see it's been tough putting it together what was a little bit awkward in putting it together for you
3: um i think it was just initially um you because know, the last year the last edition we had the, the public domain imagery so it wasn't that hard to, to find something to put it in the images whereas this time it was contacting all the artists and uh, getting commissioned work and getting bits of work that were previously been done that we could uh, get permission to republish. Uh, and that was, you know, a long process because it's not just a case of contacting somebody and saying, I'm going to use it until next week, it'll, it'll be here. You know, it was two or three months and sometimes four months for the process to to, to happen. So, uh, I'm actually, you know, we're finished volume two. Looking at getting together a list of artists, Volume Three already. So, <laughs> the Volume Two is just finished, but Volume Three is happening
2: as well. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about. You know, and honestly, like you say, we'll totally have a break from stuff. But are you still going to go down that route and kind of approach writers, or are you thinking maybe because honestly, the, the ball's in your court. You know, it's it's entirely up to you. Or do you think well, let's just stick to a more an easy, easy, manageable one?
3: Ah no, I think it's 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 great to get uh, commissioned artwork for each of the stories from from the various artists. I, I enjoyed that process. It may have been a, a long daunting process, but it was great getting to know all the artists who were involved and you know having a, a weekly communication with them and and, and you know the, the process of communicating communicating what we wanted for the. The, the story to look like, and, for, and coming back with thumbnail sketches, and you know, looking to see if they're the going the right direction. You know, mostly I took their their initial thoughts on and said, "You yeah, run with that," because you know they're they the experts in their field, and uh, I wasn't going to tell them, "No, that's not right." So know, yeah, I, I enjoyed the process. It was a it was educational.
2: I think that's exactly for me as well. You know, because day and day out, I'm I'm always trying to catch free stories off writers where. Getting the freebies, you know, as soon as, you know, I kind of sent the, or had the initial idea and then started sending out the emails, you've got to keep a track of everything, you know, so I had to have this Google documents up and then because they coming in and like what you're saying dribs and drabs and it's you just want everything in, in one go so I can email or pass them all over to you and it doesn't happen like that at all, you know, so <laughs> the extras for me was like the, the, the hard difficult bit. Do you think we should still do the extras next year?
3: I think the extras are brilliant. I think it's a really good added value for 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 the publication, and I think it's brilliant to see how the various authors uh, use their workspaces and what they look like. From you know, pristine uh, minimalist desk, which is a, a laptop on it, to some of them with a uh, huge giant libraries full of ancient books and tomes, and you know, the Necronomicon buried over in the corner somewhere. You know, it, it's it's just interesting to see uh, the various workspaces. Um, uh, and also, and also, you know, little bits and pieces that, that, that people sent over were great, the, the sketches, the poems, the, the photographs, that type of thing, you know, I think, it's, uh, I think it's, a, it's a really good piece to have in the book.
2: It is. Um, I'll tell you what, that's, you know, you've hit the nail on the head there with that, you know, you you do get a little glimpse into the kind of their little lives and especially, I noticed like Jeff Carlson, you know, this kind of thriller writer there he's got this little and he, he he's often mentioned it a couple of times he's just got this little laptop that really does nothing apart from so he can write you know and he's got it piled up on, on books and everything yeah. you know and you just don't expect you know like these writers that are punch, punching out these novels to have it like tr- popped up on little hardback books and tat the old yeah, things
3: it's great I really enjoyed it when the father asked him over having a look at that, into, that little glimpse into everybody's life it was an interesting and It was actually probably one of the best bits of doing the book was, was receiving those emails and uh, receiving that big package from you early, that, that late in the game with all the bits and pieces in it, the, the ephemera and stuff was... <laughs> That was a little bonus for me as well, as, as I presume for all the readers who are buying the book.
2: I'll tell you what, another, way, another one, we, the, Lucius Shepherd when he sent his photographs over, you know, like you say, some people are just like, it's dead smart and the office is like, you know, immaculate and his book's lined up. And Lucius Shepard is just like, his desk, it's covered in like pill bottles and then his jumper shoved his bench and everything and he's just like ploughing away, writing away. I think that's fantastic.
3: Yeah. It's actually interesting since uh, since the publication of volume two, I've actually received a couple of emails from people who we'd contacted, who I contacted previous to that, who uh, you know hadn't got back to me or or just hadn't spotted the email. they actually got back after this. Who were you know already uh, you can count me in for volume three, which is brilliant. You know there's one or two of my favourite artists who I was a little bit disappointed hadn't got back to me, but now that they've got back after. Uh, after the Volume 2, to say that they could be in for Volume 3 was brilliant. So, I've actually got a list of people who, you know, sadly couldn't be part of Volume 2, who already want to be in for Volume 3. So, there's a list already that I can hit straight away. So, you know,
2: if we want to commission now, no. D- D- you are mad? Because <laughs> honestly, I thought, honestly, I honestly, honestly thought you would just say, right, and that's it. Give me, Tony, don't even email me. Give me three months on three months just like quiet time. God, I haven't even thought about writers as yet or anything like that. Was but... I don't know.
3: I always need a little project to, to be working on uh, outside of work and. You know, there's nothing worse than going home uh, for me in the evening and having nothing to do. you know, sitting watch TV. I'd rather be, you know, kind of one eye on the TV and one eye on the laptop, you know, sorting through emails and, you know, checking things. So it's good to have a have a, a passion project. It kind of keeps you, uh, keeps you, you focused in work as well. You know, you can you can do your your boring old work job, work day job, and then you've got a little bit of a, a passion project at night. It gives you. Gives yeah,
2: you a little jump in life, you know. <laughs> Honestly, you'll see. Well, I'm gonna—I'll smack you right in the face with this email that'll come over because it'll be a little—you uh, know—when you get the invitation to a Google Documents. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> what <I'll>, is this? <laughs> I'll—I'll no, send one of them over in like Google Documents invitation volume three. <laughs> <laughs> so we can start planning away. Honestly, all this—and we never get to meet physically. But do you know what I mean? I just so many... the. I've spoken to you on email, how many times? Hundreds, there's probably oh, thousands, thousands now. Thousands know? at this stage now, yeah. Do you know? Because actually that was one of the things I was going to do with you, keep, keep that thing, you know, and publish them, but bloody hell. Not, oh, it'd be a book of its own. Uh-huh, uh-huh, But honestly, I've really enjoyed all the time working with you, you know what I mean? And like you say, what you're producing there is just amazing. Do you know what I mean? It's just like... And i, I tell you why you can kind of tell, because... Like I've just mentioned on the show there last week, I'm getting emails from writers. You know, Ted Kazmatka dropped us an email and just loved it. You know, I loved his artwork, loved the layout and everything like that. And I couldn't do that, you know, physically. I haven't got a clue what anything like that. Where you just put, you've just made this book, honestly, and it's staggering, to be quite honest. Thank you so much.
3: Oh no problem. You know, we, you've been giving to everybody uh, for the last couple of years with the with the podcast. So that was initially what my thought was for Volume One was just to, you know give a little back uh, to the community and to you for for uh, providing us with all those areas of entertainment. So you know and it's great to hear feedback like that that people are enjoying it and and, and getting not only just the readers but also it's great to, to hear back from the writers and and the illustrators themselves. So I think it uh, uh, Love the way it's been uh,
2: formatted as well. Uh, and did you did you know well? I think yes, you did because you told me about. Uh, we got mentioned on Io Nine with it, and we got mentioned on Boing Boing with it as well. So you know, it, it's well that's
3: pretty interesting. are are two favourite uh, uh, nerd uh, nerd sites that I, I visit for my my my, my daily boost of uh, of uh, nerd news. So it was great <laughs> to get to see see a bit of work that that I've done up on the, the top of those uh, front pages. Um, which
2: is great. Anything? And, uh, which, sorry, I was going to just jump in there. Anything special that you might have planned for Volume Three? Is there anything other ideas that you've got buzzing around for Volume Three? I
3: actually no. I actually haven't thought of, of, of anything that's being you know added value for Volume Three. It is that that little bit of time away. So we, we've got a. Couple of months to maybe dream of something, maybe a new format. You know, the same size book, but have a look at the the, the layout, or maybe move it on a decade or something, move it up to the the sixties or, or or to the seventies for 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 a different a different look in the book but again that's all something that we can talk about at a later
2: date we could do an addition um, we could do it like a really special 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 edition where me and you go over to someone's house and actually do like a Monty Python Pie- a Monty um, a dance one of them <laughs> striptease dances <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh well uh, we could just go to the States on that one <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, you know, I think you maybe uh, might come over to a con over here in in Ireland, which would be great for a weekend. That would be nice, did, yes. Did a Starship Table. There's there's lots of conventions on here. There was actually one on last weekend, uh, Octocon I think it was, and uh, the father of the who's Neil Gaiman's uh, assistant, was over. for Last She was the guest.
2: Oh right, that. yes. Did you go? Did you go to it? Did you? No, I didn't. I
3: didn't realise it was on, and uh, it was only on the Friday when I, I, I got an email from somebody saying, "Are you going?" I was like, "Oh no." I've other things planned this weekend, so but i I've not really haven't really been to many conventions. I don't haven't a huge amount of time. But if if, if there was a big one coming up in Ireland, I'd I'd love to go. Or even
2: if we organise a starship convention somewhere, that would be brilliant. Yes, yeah, just a, it would be just like a, a pub in the middle of the countryside with a, with a curry house near it. <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly what we want. <laughs> and actually, we were talking about, I think the last time we got together, maybe going over to Worldcon. Well, I don't think it's going to happen, isn't it? Like the starship's almost um, contingent. I don't think it's going to manage it this year. And- well,
3: I think it, the, the finances for that, are, it, it's an expensive convention, but- to, to go to. I think, you know, if you're in the States, if you live in the States, it would be easy enough, you know, get a greyhound bus and, you know, crash of somebody's gates but I, I think for us to go over for that, it would be, be wildly expensive. Definitely. Unless, you know, if somebody wants to set up a, a fund for us and they can send us over.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Actually, God, like you say, it's just ridiculous money, do you know what I mean? It's just, uh, we can plough our money into other things, I think, which, um help keep us... Absolutely, the going, it, it's... Yes.
3: Uh, it's silly money to spend on something to go over for a weekend away, basically. Whereas, you know, that money could be paid into into the Starship and, and you know, come up with something new. That, that'd that be interesting.
2: Well, Dee, honestly, and uh, you're at work again. Oh, how was your, your arm before we go? Because last time we spoke, you broke your bloody arm. How was
3: well, it was, was my shoulder blade. It's uh, it's healing up okay. It's, it's still very sore, um, like all the time. Um, but it's uh, just kind of soldier through, through these things and you know yourself from, from your fall there a couple of years ago. That you know, initially it'll it hits you hard but you kinda have to just get on with
2: things. <laughs> and you know what? <laughs> My emails didn't stop coming. Did you know <laughs> Oh no <laughs>
3: well, I do have a left hand so yeah, I, I could uh, I could reply with that. <laughs> to honestly I could I you... sorry? We were lucky I was lucky that we got to the final stage of the book where nothing actually really needed to be done uh, and I could just basically hit send yeah, you know, if it'd come a week earlier or two weeks earlier, it would have severely impacted on the release date of the book.
2: You've, when you think about it, do you know what I mean? And if it, it had come, and then you were trying to glue and stick, do you know what I mean? What would oh, yeah, I know. yeah.
3: Well, that—that's the, the thing. I the hardback it seems to be taking an awful long time to come oh, out from. Goodness. I'm guessing it's been published in the states and coming over to us. Um, because I see that people on the forums and on Facebook have already received their copies of the book and sure. We haven't yet.
2: <laughs> no, not even me. Do you know what? I mean? And I tell you what. It, it, someone mentioned on the forums about posting it out. And if you buy English, if you buy it and the paperback together, it's a fortune. But if you buy I them, if you buy them separately, it's <laughs> cheap as chips. Oh, you know, absolutely, it,
3: yeah. But like, well, it, I think that there was a difference of, of about sixty dollars between buying them separately and mm-hmm. getting I think they're posting from England through the States and then from the States to England and then they're meeting up somewhere in the middle and you know it did seem like a great price.
2: Well, honestly, D, I'm so proud of like all you've done for you know for the show, especially these volumes one and two, and you know Captain's logs, and um, honestly, it's made me, dear that you you know you're kind of even thinking about or considering volunteering again to do volume three. that's, you know, well, uh, it's,
3: it's, it's only considering. <laughs> <laughs> it's still under consideration,
2: <laughs> <though>. <laughs> It's not expensive. Have- <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> D, honestly, thank you so much. No problem, Tony. Now, we mentioned there that there was... I can't remember what we mentioned in that interview, but how many books there was. Things have changed totally since then. There is only eight copies left of this big... You know, the big signature ones. If you want a copy, honestly... I had sold two last night. Please get in touch because they will go, you know what I mean? Eventually they'll go and I was so proud that I got the hardback copy book come through and, do you know what I mean? That's just amazing. So please, you know, if you if you don't want that, you know, still remember it keeps the show going. Go over to our website, go over to Lulu, get yourself the book. But if you want that hard copy book with the signatures, with Neil Gaiman, China Mabel and everybody else, Corey Doctorow There's only eight left. They are selling, so please, you better be quick. Next up is Film Talk by Rod Barnett. Hello, everybody. Well,
0: fall is upon us at last, and the weather is cooling down, the leaves are changing, and it's beautiful outside. It's sweater weather, and it's that time of year when I start to crave creepy movies. Scary movies, the things that get under your skin. I love them so. And the other night... I decided to dive in and watch a few things, and I rewatched George Romero's adaptation of Stephen King's novel, The Dark Half. It was the first time I'd seen it in years. I first caught it in its brief theatrical run in 1993 and really liked it then, but I've been surprised to note that the general consensus seems to be that it's a terrible movie. This perception was reinforced recently when I was listening to a couple of podcasters discuss Stephen King adaptations and they badmouth The Dark Half while praising Pet Cemetery the film Pet Cemetery I only finally caught up with Pet Cemetery about a year ago but I can tell you plainly that it sucks it's dull flatly directed indifferently cast except for one role over obvious and at several points it is rather stupid to prefer that film to The Dark Half is to invite charges from me at least of being completely blind the Dark Half is a beautifully shot, expertly directed and edited, well paced and brilliantly acted terror tale that taps into a host of adult fears. The horror of having the darker side of your creative nature manifest itself and demand to be paid heed is an amazing idea, and although King is far from the first writer to play with this idea, his take, filtered through Romero's scriptwriting of course, is fascinating. By making the two halves fight for the single life they're afforded, a physical confrontation of dark and light played out over the creative act of writing itself, the movie literalizes the battle every writer feels when faced with a deadline and a blank page. But beyond that idea, the film is just a joy to watch as the story unfolds. The film was made when Romero was at the height of his power as a director, and his sure-footed choices in every single scene are amazing to watch. There were several times I backed the movie up just to watch a particular sequence again to marvel at how perfectly he chose his camera placement to best communicate what needs to be shown. His framing is fantastic throughout, and I think he must have loved working with such a strong cast, capable of taking advantage of the uniformly good dialogue. Timothy Hutton, who is the lead, has always been a good actor, so it's no surprise that he brings great depth and nuance to the central dual role. Romero is used to uh, tight close-ups, and he's able to use really nice ones on Hutton to get across a host of emotions that a lesser actor would have had to brush past to get the job done. He's always believably real as Thad Beaumont, and I love that name. It's a nod to one of my favorite writers, Charles Beaumont. But he's also great as the vicious, razor-wielding alter ego named George Stark, Amy Madigan, as Thad's wife, is very good as well, even though I found it strange that she sports a hairstyle and clothing that seems to try to make her look a bit like Romero's wife, Christine. Um, Interesting choice there, George. Identify with your central character much? Michael Rooker, as the local sheriff and friend of the family tasked with protecting the Beaumonts and their twin sons, that's another nice touch, he's very good in a role that could have been very one-note. Smartly, Romero gives Rooker's character a few scenes of his home life as well to provide context for what he sees as the best way to do his job. And have I mentioned the fact that the movie was filmed in the fall? Oh my goodness, is this the perfect time of year to watch this movie. Colorful leaves being blown along the ground, bare tree limbs stretching to the sky like skeletal hands grasping at the dark clouds overhead, jackets and sweaters worn to ward off the visible chill in the air... It's gorgeous, and I long for a high definition version of this film to better appreciate the lovely autumnal color scheme. This is a great movie and one ripe for rediscovery. I have to admit though that rediscovery of the Dark Half is not being made easy by the rather indifferent DVD treatment given to it by MGM. Issued years ago the movie's presented in a full frame print and has clearly not been remastered with much care. After a few minutes, I realized what the image was meant to look like, so I cropped it on my TV to about a 1.85 to 1 aspect ratio by blowing the image up on the screen and found that the film was framed perfectly this way and played much better without that extraneous material at the top and the bottom. This is a beautiful, very good movie, and it deserves a new DVD or even a, dare I hope, Blu-ray release. If Romero and King could be convinced to sit down for a commentary track, I'd be thrilled as well. This film was the second of their collaborations, and although I love the EC Comics-inspired creep show a lot, this is the one that best blends their two separate styles of storytelling in a way that creates something stronger than they might have made apart. It's certainly one of the best horror adaptations Mr. King has ever been afforded and deserves much more respect than it receives. Let me highly recommend you either revisit it or check it out for the first time. I don't think you'll be disappointed. It's a nice one. Happy hunting, folks. We'll talk to you again
2: soon. Rodney, sir, thank you so much. Next up is a little interview with James Morrow, and I wanted to find out who is James Morrow. Uh,
1: James Morrow is a a satirist. Um, I think... uh on my tombstone, I would prefer that label to be to be chiseled into the marble james Morrow satirist rather than science fiction writer. I mean I love to work with all of the uh, the tropes and conventions of of the genre i love I love the toolkit, and of course in uh, in lady witherspoon 's solution, I open the toolkit and take out uh, you know the 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 science fiction convention of of the drug that can speed up. Uh, or decelerate human human evolution, uh, but the story is manifestly playful, and um, I think I think the header note gets it right from Nick Geevers that it, it it both lampoons and celebrates uh, 19th century feminism. Well, that
2: was actually the first time I came across. You You know, I've seen the name James Morrow before there, but when you so kindly lent with that story and got it narrated, you know, that's when I just kind of thought, "Wow, I've missed this writer all." You know, I've just totally missed him there, and I've been gobbling up your work. And then you sent us over the Buda Vista, the Bigfoot and Buda Vista, and that (laughs) that story is just, you know, that's the one we're going to actually play now. How do? Where do you start, Jim, with like a story like that?
1: Uh, well, I guess my modus operandi is to put two things together that that have never uh <laughs> never uh appeared on the same page of fiction before, so um, you know I like uh, I like uh, monsters um, I love the old hammer film about the abominable snowman uh, and uh, you know but I've also got an interest in the whole the whole universe of, of metaphysics so I said hmm let me take the Dalai Lama and put him in the same story with with a yeti and see if some sparks fly and uh, you know I had a lot of fun with the notion that uh, that the Yeti wants to learn Tibetan Buddhism because he's feeling uh, kind of of ashamed of his lifestyle, which is, of course, eating the brains of uh, yuppie mountain climbers who are expiring on the slopes of uh, Mount Everest, uh, and he wants a little more spirituality in his life. So, yeah, I think it's just cludging together things that, that it would not occur to most people have any relationship to each other.
2: I tell you what I really love about your stories, Jim, is when you actually finish them, you, you come away from them, you feel good. Do you know what I mean? There is, you, you have this kind of nice feeling about you when you, you finish reading. What's it like on the other side of the fence for you, writing? Do you know? Have you, are you sitting down with a wicked little smile on your face all the time, or does sometimes the words just don't come and it's actually a, a real chore for you?
1: uh well of course i I like the truism uh I'm not sure to whom to ascribe it that a, a writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people uh and uh you know there are good days and and bad days uh an ultimate high for me is when i've is when i've got a scene that's that's almost working, and I print it out and I take it to a coffee shop and I make corrections. Uh, that, that snap it into something that's, that I think is going to be delightful. And then the wicked smile, as you put it, the wicked smile indeed blossoms on my face. (laughs) And I say, uh, this is going to be fun. It's going to be pleasurable for the reader, but also, I hope, some, some food for thought. Um, you know, I've identified myself as a satirist. I'm not in the darkest school of satire. You know, I haven't, I haven't given up on my fellow humans. I'm a great admirer of, uh, of the late, Uh, Kurt Vonnegut, but uh, his vision is nihilistic compared to what you're talking about. There is a sort of upbeat (laughs) impulse behind my, my project is there any themes that you won't
2: touch jim you know because I mean? it's i just love your your godhead trilogy where you know you're you're actually on your website in the first paragraph you go throughout the 1990s jim devoted his literary energies to killing god <laughs> that, that that again just put a smile on my face but is there anything that you'll, you'll not go near
1: um well that's that's a really good question um I mean, I, I don't think I'll ever return to uh, to Eastern religions, um, and, and even you know, even though you'll find in Bigfoot and the, and the Bodhisattva something of a critique of, of Tibetan Buddhism, not not uh, a New Age celebration of it by any means. Um, you know, I really don't know that much about uh, the Eastern faiths. I don't know much about uh, Islam. Um, but uh, you know what I'm—the axe I'm grinding now. <laughs> the axe I'm grinding is is the whole uh, phenomenon of the coming of the Darwinian worldview. And I guess what I'm particularly impatient with at the moment is people who I think should know better who say, "Oh, there's really no conflict between uh, the news that Darwin brought back from the Galapagos Islands and uh, traditional Christian beliefs. So, I mean, they can easily be reconciled." And and I think darwinism is a big big problem for the god hypothesis uh and that's going to annoy some people you know that's not a subject that's automatically soothing people want to hear (laughs) it seems to me uh that, that they can they can have their their uh their darwin cake uh you know and their cake of faith and consume them both with great relish and with no indigestion and i'm going to be rather puckish about it and uh, the imp of, of my perversity says no we've really got to have a conversation about that
2: are you quite happy to be poking sticks at you know different people's beliefs and everything like that or do you just want to write a story that you want to write
1: well, uh I suppose there's a sort of whiff of the soapbox about my agenda um, It's not so much that I enjoy poking people, but i do uh, I do like to think i'm getting them getting them to have thoughts they've never maybe never had before um, I, as you might guess, about half the emails uh, that I receive uh, in the in the the fan letter section of my of my uh, email program are from atheists and contrarians, and they say, you know, go for it, Jim, uh, you know, give the, the dead horse of organized religion <laughs> another another kick in the groin for me. But but the other half of uh, the fan mail I received is from believers, and I actually find those the most gratifying. Uh, these are churchgoers who say, well, Jim, I don't agree with your conclusions. Uh, I still think there's a God or there's some... Some kind of supernatural dimension to the universe, but you've taught me that uh, religion needn't be so gall darn serious. One needn't approach. Uh, large questions of, of, of faith uh, with a with a somber face. You've you've taught me to be a little playful with my own sort of theological speculations, and that's very gratifying to me. Um, I, I wouldn't I would derive no pleasure simply from taking somebody's faith away from them or hurting uh, their relationship with their family members because they became a convert to the to the Church of James Morrow. Uh, I'm not trying to to start a church. I just want People to have a conversation with themselves about these grand philosophical questions, and if I can help them to sustain that conversation, that's all to the good.
2: You you came out last year. I think it was last year with Shamlin towards Hiroshima. Now that was was that? Am I right in thinking that's your last one you've had published?
1: That's yes, that's the most recent yeah. of my novels to see print. Uh, something of a departure in that there's no uh, uh, overt. Uh, uh, metaphysical material at the at the center of the book. Um, it's uh, but it, it's quite satiric. It imagines that um, the United States Navy was working on a biological superweapon at the t- same time that the Army was building the atomic bomb, and this uh, biological weapon happens to take the form of giant mutant uh, fire-breathing bipedal amphibious iguanas. Uh, which strangely anticipate Godzilla, and the Navy fully intends to unleash these monsters on Japanese cities by way of bringing about a hasty end to the Second World War. Uh, some people begin questioning the morality of this, and the Navy decides they should do a test demonstration uh, of of the weapons. So the plot becomes uh, the ordeal of an actor, a Hollywood horror player named Sims Forley, who has to put on a rubber lizard suit and demonstrate. Before a Japanese delegation, what it would look like to have one of your cities attacked by one of these monsters? What about
2: Jim, the your short stories? I is do you prefer the novel or the short story? Because I see you know you've got a mixture of both throughout your, your writing career.
1: Yeah, well, I uh, I think that the short story is arguably the heart and soul. Of science fiction to the degree that science fiction is a literature of ideas, uh, you can do uh, a thought experiment, play the idea out, and uh, you know you've, you've really accomplished something. And I can I intend to keep writing short stories. That said, my heart is really in the novel. I'm a great lover of uh, of, of the large canvas. I like I like epics, and this book I'm working on now. The uh, tentatively titled Galapagos Regained is going to be, oh, almost uh, 700 pages, I think, in, in manuscript. And uh, I'll be making some cuts in it. Uh, but I, I, I think that there's still a place for the novel, Tony, even in this uh, cybernetic age where you, have, you can get narrative from so many media be- beyond the printed page. I do think the novel is still a form in which you you can wrestle an idea to the ground. You can explore it in all its dimensions. And a and a theme like the coming of the Darwinian worldview, I think would resist a feature film. It would resist a video game. It would it would resist a short story. It needs to be a a big novel and that's what I'm that's what I'm doing night and day here in Pennsylvania.
2: That's the way, sir. And has this one I mean, has all you're your writing Jim, has it got that comic element in it? Or is there some stories there that haven't really got the comic element in?
1: Uh I suppose there's there's an element of of whimsy, satire, uh, facetiousness, <laughs> sardonicism in in every time James Morrow's uh uh Pen strikes the paper. Something of those like that comes flying out. Uh, it's just my sensibility, you know. And um, I, uh, I suppose, as a challenge to myself, I could try to write a story with a completely straight face. Uh, but I don't think I've done it yet. You know, thinking back over my oeuvre, uh, there, there's. And it's it's just it's just who I am, you know. Um, I, I guess uh, it could be argued that that humor can be a kind of a crutch, I suppose. And uh, I prefer to think of it as a as a as a Trojan horse, a way to sort of smuggle <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe uh, uh, distressing ideas past the reader's defenses. And. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I certainly, uh, my own tastes will often run to works that are completely straight, you know, to to to, to drama that has no no uh, whiff of humor about it at all. You know, Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman or something one of my favorite works of art. <laughs> There's not a single joke in the thing. Uh, but uh, you know, I'll uh, you, you're you're setting an interesting challenge to me, Tony. Maybe I'll... <laughs> <laughs> after this conversation, I'll go and try to write completely. <laughs> completely serious story with no with no joke.
2: What what other things interests James Morrow then? You know like outside of the, the fiction and the and the reading and the genre and all that, it totally different have you got anything totally different that interests you? Um uh, what
1: am, what what else do I do with my life when yes. I not writing <laughs> uh, the uh well, the hobbies of James Morrow include uh, playing with uh, the electric trains that he had when he was a kid I've a pretty elaborate model train layout in my in my attic uh, I've got a couple dogs I've got uh, two children and uh, and three grandchildren and an astonishing wife and uh, you know they they keep me honest they, uh, they <laughs> uh, I find, you know, that the challenge uh, for the sort of writer I am, who's pretty much addicted to his to his craft, is not uh, you know, how do I keep writing all the time? How do I keep uh, returning to the word processor day after day? It's, you know, how do I do right by the outside world? How do I also try to be a decent husband and father and, and grandfather? Um, but uh, we also travel quite a bit, and my wife Kathy and I are just back from uh, an epic adventure in Europe. I was invited to give a talk at the International Tolstoy Conference in Russia at uh, Yesnaya Polyana, the, uh, uh, the Tolstoy estate. And we came back in slow motion through Eastern Europe, dropped off in uh, Kraków, where my sister-in-law has an apartment, and we went to Prague to communicate with the shade of, Franz Kafka and ended up in the UK where I had uh, some research chores to accomplish for the Darwin novel so we went to Oxford and we went to Darwin's house is now open to the public as you may know uh, you can take a tour of his of his estate uh, downhouse which is in County Kent and that was extremely useful for my novel I learned all sorts of idiosyncratic facts about Darwin that you could only get uh, in situ there
2: so just before we say goodbye then Jim what when can we you know expect this book coming out is it is everything going okay with you know the writing process is, is going okay or is is it one of them ones that you keep hitting some brick walls can we see it soon
1: <laughs> Well uh my agent keeps asking the same question when am i going to see this book uh, i've set myself a uh a deadline of it's going to be my uh, it's going to be a christmas present to my agent uh uh, here in the United States, and also when I was in London, uh, I had, I had uh, lunch with my uh, UK agent, and I told him, that's going to be your Christmas present. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I, it's, uh, it's largely written. I'm, I'm in the middle of rewriting, but I would not expect anyone to find it in a bookstore for at least a year and a half, or probably more like two years from now.
4: Well,
2: honestly, Jim, I can't wait, to be quite honest. Like I say, I discovered your stuff when you sent over the short stories and just loving your work. And I know a lot of the listeners are doing that as well, you know, discovering who James Morrow is. Thank you so much for coming on Starship so far.
1: That's very gratifying, and you're very welcome, Tony.
2: Jim, have a lovely day. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, main fiction time. This story is Bigfoot and the Bodhisattva by James Morrow. I will put a link onto where this story first came out on the internet. Do pop over there and have a look. Conjunctions. It is narrated by the one and only Mr. Larry Santoro. Larry's been, you know, you, you haven't heard him for a while... Hopefully we can get him back on a few more times. You're going to hear him at the end of this narration as well. Just having a little chat about how he put it together. And I'll just kind of play that straight away after the story. So please, you know, this is, I'm so proud of this story. This is fantastic. The artwork by Ben, it just all marries together so well to make this show 160. Fantastic. <laughs> so the Starship over and her oral delights is very proud to present...
5: Bigfoot and the Bodhisattva by James Morrow. Read by Lawrence Santoro. After 30 years spent eating the chilled coral brains of overachieving amateur climbers who believed they could reach the summit of Mount Everest without dying, a diet from which I derived many insights into the virtues and limitations of Western thought, I decided that my life could use a touch more spirituality. So I resolved to study Tibetan Buddhism under the tutelage of His Holiness Jogi Gyatso, the 15th Dalai Lama. The the problem was not so much that I nourished myself through cerebrophagy, but that I felt so little pity for the unfortunates on whom I fed. Jogi Gyatso, by contrast, was reportedly the reincarnation of Valokitsavara, the Bodhisattva of compassion. Evidently, he had much to teach me. As far as I know, I was the first of my race to undertake an explicitly religious quest. Traditionally, we yeti are an unchurched species. Our ideological commitments such as they are tend along Marxist lines, the natural inclination of any creature with a dialectical metabolism. But we try not to push it too far, lest we lapse into hypocrisy. After all, it's difficult to maintain a robust contempt for the haute bourgeoisie when their neuronal tissues are your preferred source of sustenance. We live by a code and kill by a cannon. Yes, kill, for the raw fact is that while the typical cyanotic climber who winds up on the Yeti menu may be doomed, he is not necessarily dead. We always follow protocol, happening upon a lost and languishing mountaineer. I shall immediately search the scene for some evidence that he might survive. If I spot a Sherpa party on the horizon or a rescue helicopter in the distance, I shall continue on my way. If death appears inevitable, however, I tell the victim of my intention, then perform the venerable act of Nang Duzul hedging the frosty skull with all thirty-eight of my teeth, assuming a wide stance for maximum torque, and finally snaffling off the cranium in an abrupt yet respectful gesture. The Shah is traditionally devoured on the spot— it's all very ritualistic, all very in nomine patris et fili, et spiritus sancti, that, that, to use a phrase I learned from the left cerebral hemisphere of Michael Rafferty, former seminarian, best-selling author of 18 father to detective novels, and failed Everest aspirant. No matter how scrupulously he observes the norms of Nang de Zul, the celebrant cannot expect any immediate cognitive gain. He must be patient. This isn't vodka. Two or three hours will elapse before the arrival of the shah shaspa, the meat knowledge, but it's usually worth the wait. Typically, the enrichment will linger for over a year, sometimes a decade, occasionally a lifetime. Last week, I partook of a tenured comparative literature professor from Princeton hence the formality of my present diction. I would have preferred a South Jersey mafioso to a Central Jersey postmodernist, the the better to tell my story quickly and colorfully, but the mob rarely comes up on the mountain. My benefactor's name was Dexter Sherwood, and he'd remitted $65,000 to an outfit called Karmic Adventures on the promise that they would get him to the summit along with six other well-heeled clients— The corporation fulfilled its half of the contract, placing Dexter Sherwood squarely atop the planet. But during the descent, a freak storm arrived, and it became every man for himself. I have nothing good to say about karmic adventures and its rivals, extreme ascents, Himalayan challenge, rappelling to paradise, Jomalunga or bust. Uh, They litter the slopes with their oxygen tanks. They piss off the sky gods, and every so often they kill a customer. My parents froze to death on Everest, and all I got was this lousy (laughs) T-shirt. I shall not deny that a connoisseur of long pork uh, occupies ethically ambiguous ground, so let me offer the following proposition. If you will grant that my race is fully sentient with all attendant rights and privileges, then we shall admit to being cannibals." True, we are Candidopithecus Tibetus, and you are Homo sapiens, but my younger sister Namgyal long ago demonstrated that this taxonomy is no barrier to fertile intercourse between our races. Hence my half breed niece Tencho and my mixed blood nephew Jurmo. Do we have an understanding now, O oh furless ones? Call us psychopaths and domerists and accuse us of despoiling the dead, but spare us your stinking zoos, your lurid circuses, your ugly sideshows, your atrocious laboratories. This agreement, of course, is purely academic, for you'll never learn that we exist, not at least in consequence of the present text. I do not write for your amusement, but for my own enlightenment. In setting down this account of my religious education, all the while imagining that my audience is your cryptic kind, I hope to make some sense of the tragedy that befell His Holiness. And when I am done, you may be sure I shall drop the manuscript into the deepest, darkest crevasse I can find. I did not doubt that Chogi Gyatso would agree to instruct me in the Dharma, For the past four years my clan and I had faithfully shielded him from the predations of the People's Liberation Army during his thrice-yearly pilgrimage from Sikkim to Tibet. Thanks to me and my cousins, the true Dalai Lama had thus far enjoyed twelve secret audiences with his false counterpart in Lhasa. His Holiness owed me one." "'Why do you wish to study the Dharma?' Chogigyatso inquired, knitting his considerable brow. "'My uh, my eating habits cause me distress,' I explained. "'Digestive?' "'No, deontological. "'I know all about your eating habits, Thaktrakunga.' his Holiness said, soothing me with his soft, hazel eyes. He had a moon face, a shaved pate, and prominent ears. Behind his back, we Yeti called him Mr. Sacred Potato Head. You feed on deceased climbers extracting the Shah Shispa from their brains, yes? Although our local holy men were aware of yeti culinary practices, they'd never learned all the sordid details, assuming in their innocence that we restrained our appetite until the donor was, well, defunct, an illusion I preferred to keep intact. Every species has its own epistemology, I noted, offering His Holiness an intense dental grin." "'Well, for me, you are like the carrion-birds who assist in our sky burials,' Jogigatsu said. "Scavenging is an honourable way of life, Takhtrakunga. "'You have no more need of Buddhism than does a vulture.' "'Well, I wish to feel pity for those on whom I pray,' I explained. "'A seraphic light filled His Holiness's countenance.' Now I was speaking his language. Does it occur to you that were you to acquire this pity, you might end up forsaking Sha shispa altogether? It's a risk I'm willing to take. I shall become your teacher under two conditions. First, each lesson must occur at a time and place of my own choosing.' Second, you must forgo your usual cheekiness "'and approach me with an attitude of respectful submission. "'Well, I'm sorry to hear you think I'm cheeky, Your Holiness, "'and I'm sorry if I've insulted you, your hairiness. "'I merely want to clarify that these lessons will be different "'from the banter we enjoy during our journeys to Lhasa. "'We shall have fun, but we shall not descend into facetiousness.' No talk of James Bond, I said, nodding sagely. Like the 14th Dalai Lama before him, Chogi Gyatso was an aficionado of Anglo-American cinema. Uh, Until I began my study of the Dharma, our, our mutual affection for Agent 007 was the only thing we really had in common. Or perhaps much talk of James Bond, the monk corrected me, though surely even more talk of Chambon the dance celebrating the gods. The motives behind our trip to see the false Dalai Lama were essentially political rather than religious, although in His Holiness's universe the art of the possible and the pursuit of the ineffable often melded together. Having once dined on Lawrence Beckwith, a Stanford professor of 20th century Asian history, I understood the necessity of these furtive treks, The disaster began in 1950 when the People's Liberation Army crossed the upper Yangtze and marched on Lhasa with the aim of delivering the Tibetan people from the ravages of their own culture. By 1955, the collectivization process was fully underway, with Mao Zedong's troops confiscating whatever property, possessions, and human beings stood in the way of turning this backward feudal society into a brutal socialist paradise." over the next four years, it became clear that China intended to dissolve the Tibetan government altogether and imprison Tenzin Gyatso, the 14th Dalai Lama. And so, on the evening of March 17, 1959, that regal young man disguised himself as a soldier and fled to Dharamsala in India, where he eventually established a government in exile, got on the radar of the secular West, and won a Nobel Peace Prize. A mere two months after Tenzin Gyatso passed away, Beijing shamelessly appointed a successor, a, a bewildered three-year-old from Wukongasar named Shipko Tsering. On his tenth birthday, Shipko Tsering was taken from his parents, placed under house arrest in the Patola Palace, and ordained as Juntu Gyatso, the 15th Dalai Lama. No Tibetan Buddhist was fooled, and neither were we Yeti. Gyunto Gyatso is no more the reincarnation of Tenzin Gyatso than I am the reincarnation of King Kong. Among my race, he's known as the Phonisattva. Meanwhile, the monks in Dharamsala set about locating the genuine 15th Dalai Lama, and when a chubby infant from Sangmu, Topse Gotoshalen passed all the tests, including the correct identification of the late Tenzin Gyatso's eyeglasses, prayer beads, hand drum, and wristwatch from among dozens of choices, he forthwith became Chogi Gyatso, the latest iteration of the Bodhisattva of Compassion. On Chogi Gyatso's twenty-first birthday, the monks relocated their itinerant theocracy to the austere environs of Gangtok and Sikkim. The Pashin Lama told the outside world that certain benevolent deities communicating through dreams had demanded this move. He did not mention that these same gods evidently envisioned His Holiness periodically slipping across the border to advise the false Dalai Lama in matters both pragmatic and cosmic. And so it happened that one fine white day in February... My lair became the locus of a royal visit. The unexpected arrival of Chogi Gyatso and his retinue threw my girlfriend, Gawa Samfel, into a a tizzy, and I I was equally nonplussed. Had we known they were coming, Gawa and I would have tidied up the living room, disposing of the climber skulls strewn everywhere. We, We were fond of gnawing on them after sex. Death is healthier than cigarettes. To their credit, the monks pretended not to notice the bony clutter. Gala served a Yeti specialty, a pineal gland tea sweetened with honey. His holiness drained his mug, cleared his throat, and got to the point. As the leader of the tall and valiant antelope clan, it was an accurate assessment, the average Yeti height being eight feet and the typical Yeti heart being stout – I could perform a great service for the long-suffering Tibetan people if I and my fellow Shimis would escort His Holiness through the Lachung Pass to Lhasa three times a year, doing our best to peacefully and compassionately keep the Chinese patrols at bay. The monks back in Gangtok would send forth 800,000 prayers a week for the continued prosperity of my race." His Holiness promised to compensate us for our trouble one hundred rupees per yeti per six-day pilgrimage. "'Well, I want to help you out,' I said, massaging my scraggly beard, "'but I, 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 I fear that in the course of shielding you from the malmals, "'we shall inadvertently reveal ourselves to the world.' "'Ah, uh, that is a very logical objection,' Shogi Gyatso said, "'flashing his beautiful white teeth. "'He had the, he had the brightest smile in Asia.' And yet I have faith that these missions will not bring your species to light. Your faith, our skin, I said, I am loath to put either at risk. The faith is not something a person can put at risk, His Holiness informed me, wiping the steam from his glasses with the sleeve of his robe. Faith is the opposite of a James Bond martini. It may be stirred, but not shaken." To this day, I am not sure why I assented to become His Holiness's paladin. It certainly wasn't the money or the prayers. I think my decision had something to do with my inveterate affection for the perverse. That and the prospect of discussing secret agent movies with a young man whose aesthetics differed so radically from my very own. I had no idea you were a James Bond fan, I said as Chogi Gatso took leave of our lair. Now that I think about it, the titles do have a certain Buddhist quality. The World is Not Enough, You Only Live Twice, Tomorrow Never Knows, Live and Let Die. Is that why you like the series? You are quite correct, Dr. Kanga, His Holiness replied. I derive much food for meditation from the Bond titles. I also enjoy the babes. Whether by the grace of the bon gods, the vicissitudes of chance, or the devotion of his yeti protectors, Jogi Giazzo's pilgrimages proved far less perilous than anyone anticipated. Uh, whenever a Chinese patrol threatened to apprehend his holiness, my six cousins and I would circle silently around the soldiers, then come at them from behind. The Mau never knew what hit him. A sudden whack between the shoulder blades, the, the blows we apes call glug... The lightning flash, and the startled soldier wobbled like a defective prayer wheel, then fell prone in the snow, gasping and groaning. And by the time the patrol recovered its collective senses, Chogi Gyatso was far away, off to see the sham wizard on his stolen throne. Our victories in these skirmishes trace largely to our invisibility— this attribute of Candidopithecus, tibetus is highly adaptive and entirely natural. Like the skin of a chameleon, our fur transmogrifies until it precisely matches the shade of the immediate snowscape. So complete is this camouflage that we appear to the naive observer as an autonomous blazing orb or disembodied flashing teeth set us down anywhere in the Himalayas, and we become eyes, without faces, fangs, without serpents, grins, without cats. Committed to conveying His Holiness to Lhasa with maximum efficiency, we eventually devised an elaborate relay system using modified climbing gear, Our method comprised a set of six grappling-irons, outfitted with especially long ropes, by hurling each hook high into the air and deliberately snagging it on the edge of a crag. Cousin Jowo, the strongest among us, had succeeded in stringing a succession of high-altitude Tarzan vines between the gateway to the Lachung Pass and the outskirts of Lhasa. Once these immense pendulums had been hung, it became a simple matter for Cousin Drebung, Cousin Yangdak, Cousin Garap, Cousin Yima, and myself to swing through the canyons in great Newtonian oscillations, gripping our respective ropes with one hand, while using the opposite arm to pass His Holiness from ape to ape, like a sacramental basketball. Cousin Nagwang brought up the rear, carefully detaching the six hooks and gathering up the ropes so the Mau Mau's would remain oblivious to our conspiracy. Naturally, my clan and I never dared venture into Lhasa proper, and so, after deposing Yatsu at the city gates, we always made a wide arc to the east, tromping through the hills until we reached the railroad bridge that spanned the Brahmaputra River like a sleek tiger leaping over a chasm. His Holiness's half-brother, Durji Lingpa, lived by himself in a yurt on the opposite shore. We could get there only by sprinting anxiously along the suspended rails. The passenger train made two scheduled and predictable round trips per day, but the freight lines and the military transports ran at odd hours, so my cousins and I were always thrilled to reach the far side of the gorge and leap to the safety of the berm.' Dorji Lingpa worked for the Chinese National Railroad. It was one of four token Tibetans in their employ. Six days a week, he'd leave his abode shortly after dawn, walk 20 paces to the siding, climb into his motorized section gang car and clatter along the maintenance line, routinely stopping to shovel snow, ice stones, rubble, litter, off the parallel stretch of gleaming high-speed track running west into Lhasa. Whereas the typical Beijing technocrat had a private driveway and a Subaru, Dorji Lingpa had his own railroad siding and a personal locomotive. A considerate, if quixotic man, His his Holiness's half-brother always remembered to leave the key under the welcome mat. My clan and I would let ourselves into the yurt, brew some buttered tea, purchase stacks of chips from our host's poker set, and pass the afternoon playing seven-card stud, which Cousin Ningguang had absorbed from a Philadelphia lawyer who'd run short of oxygen on the south coal. Chogi Gyatsu and Dorje Lingpa normally returned within an hour of each other the true Dalai Lama from counseling the Phonitzaba, his brother from clearing the Lhasa line. Usually, Chogi Gyatsu remembered to bring a new set of postcards depicting the changing face of the capital. The Lhasa of my youth was a populous and noisy, yet fundamentally congenial world. Thanks to the dubious boon of the railroad, the city now swarmed with franchise restaurants selling yak burgers, flat-screen TVs displaying prayer flags, taxicabs papered with holograms of stupas, and movie theaters running Bollywood musicals dubbed into Chinese. Our fellowship always spent the night on the premises, Choki Gyatsu and his brother bunking in the yurt, we seven yetis sleeping on the ground in the backyard. It, it, does that image bring a chill to your bones, O oh, naked ones? You should understand that our furs is not simply a kind of cloak. Every pelt, it's a dwelling like a turtle shell. We live and die within the haven of ourselves. Dorji Lingpa loved his job. But he hated his Mao Mau bosses. Every time he hosted Chogigatsu and his Yeti entourage, he outlined his latest unrealized scheme for chastising the Han Chinese. As, as you might imagine, these narratives were among the few phenomena that could dislodge gatsu 's impacted serenity. "'I've decided to target the Brahmaputra River Bridge,' Georgi Langpa told us on the occasion of the Bodhisattva's tenth pilgrimage. "'At first I thought I'd need plastique, but now, now, I believe dynamite will suffice. "'There's lots of it lying around from when they built the railroad. "'Dear brother, you are allowing anger to rule your life,' Chogiyatsu said, scowling. "'I fear you have strayed far from the path of enlightenment.' Every night as I fall asleep, I have visions of the collapsing bridge, Dorji Lingpa said, discreetly opening a window to admit fresh air. Though too polite to mention it, he obviously found our amalgamated yeti aroma rather rather too, well, piquant. I, I see a train carrying Chinese troops plunging headlong into the gorge. It's not your place to punish our oppressors, his Holiness replied. Through their ignorance they are sowing the seeds of their own future suffering— Dorji Lingpa turned to me and said, "'During the occupation, tens of thousands of Tibetans were arrested, put in concentration camps, where mass starvation and horrendous torture were the norm. When China suffered a major crop failure in 1959, the army confiscated our entire harvest, shipped it east, causing a terrible famine throughout Tibet.' "'I have forgiven the Chinese for what they did to us,' Jogi Gyatso told his brother. "'And I expect the same of you,' "'I'd rather be in a situation where you must forgive me "'for what I did to the Chinese,' Dorji Lingpa replied. "'Beloved brother, you vex me greatly,' Chogi Gyatso said. during mon lam chenmo, "'I want you to meditate from dawn to dusk. "'You must purge these evil thoughts from your mind. "'And will you promise me that?' "'Dorji Lingpa nodded listlessly. "'Anyone for seven-card stud?' "'Cousin Yangdak asked. "'Deal me in,' Cousin Yima said. "'At the start of the Cultural Revolution, the Red Guards swarmed into Tibet,' "'Dorji Lingpa told me. "'They forced monks and nuns to copulate in public, "'coerced them into urinating on sacred texts, "'threw excrement on holy men, scrawled graffiti on temple walls, "'prosecuted local leaders in kangaroo courts for so-called crimes against the people. "'Nothing wild. "'High-low table stakes,' said Cousin Yima, distributing the cards.' The red guards also went on gang rape sprees throughout the countryside. Dorji Lingpa continued, they usually required the victim's husband, parents, children, neighbors to watch. First, King Bet's cousin Yima said, two rupees. Cousin Jowa said, make it three. Cousin Drebung said. Three days later. Chogi Gyatsu sent an emissary to my lair. Lopsang Chokten, who eerily resembled the massive odd job from Goldfinger, he consumed a mug of Gawa's pineal gland tea, all the while surveying the scattered skulls, which he called splendid meditation objects, then delivered his message. His Holiness would begin my tutelage on the morning after the two-week New Year's celebration of Monlem Chemno which I knew to be a, a kind of karmic rodeo, combining sporting events, prayers, exorcisms, and, and public philosophical debates. It, it, it was in a matter corresponding to no Western religious festival whatsoever. Chogi Gyatsu suggested that I bring a toothbrush as the first stage of my apprenticeship might easily last 48 hours. I should also pack my favorite snacks, provided they contained no Chinese dog meat. As I prepared for my journey, it, it occurred to me that the mind I would be presenting to His Holiness was hardly a tabula rasa. My fur was white, but my slate was not blank. Owing to my ingestion of a dozen California pseudo-Buddhists over the years, I, I grasped much of what the Dharma involved, or, or rather did not involve— I had particularly vivid memories of a Santa Monica mystic named Kimberly Weatherwax shortly before I stumbled upon this hapless climber. She had fallen from the Lhotse face, simultaneously losing her oxygen tank and stabbing herself in the back with an ice axe. Her blood oozed through her parka and leaked onto the snow like a Jackson Pollock painting in progress— she had perhaps five minutes to live, an interval she elected to spend, telling me about her past lives in ancient Babylon and Akhenaten's Egypt. "'Are you by any chance the abominable snowman?' she asked, her brain so bereft of oxygen that she evidently felt no pain. Well, "'My girlfriend thinks I'm insufferable, but I'm not abominable,' I replied. "'Call me Taktra Kunga, a yeti of the Shimi clan.' "'A yeti?' Wow! Really? Really? That is so cool. She rasped, her voice decaying to a whisper. An actual yeti, she mumbled. This has been the most meaningful experience of my life. And now you're dying, which means I must eat your cerebral cortex. Heavy, she wheezed. She blacked out. And from the subsequent Nang de Zul, I learned that for tantric dilettantes like Kimberly Weatherwax, Eastern religion promised three big payoffs, solving the death problem through reincarnation, improving one's sex life through deferred gratification, and leaving the mundane realm of false values and failed plans for an axiomatically superior plane of relentless joy and unremitting bliss. Years later, trudging toward Gangtok for my first lesson with His Holiness, I decided that such spiritual avarice was the last thing my teacher would endorse. Obviously, the Dharma was not simply an exotic road to immortality and orgasms, not simply a a gold-plated get-out-of-samsara-free card. Clearly, there was more to infinity than that. Dressed in his most sumptuous saffron and burgundy robe, Chogi Yatsu stood waiting at the gateway to his private residence, a stately many towered palace that the deracinated monks had constructed shortly after the Malmals installed the Phonitsava in Lhasa. His holiness led me down the central corridor. I began expounding upon the Dharma. Now, I understand that reincarnation, it, it's different from immortality, and I likewise understand that the the tantris, see, it's not a means of erotic fulfillment, right? So we can dispense with those issues and get into something meatier, like right away. A man of abiding forbearance, Chogigyazzo listened thoughtfully, then looked me in the eye and unsheathed his epic smile. What, you understand, is precisely... Nothing, Taktrakunga," he said cheerily. What you understand is zero, less than zero, zero and zero again, or to use Mr. Bond's epithet, double O seven, seven seven being the number of rightful branches that a Bodhisattva will pursue while on the radiance level of his emergence, along with thirty additional such disciplines. <laughs> We slipped into His Holiness's private bedchamber, where a smiling nun hovered over a tea-cart that held a ceramic pot and a you-only-live-twice collector's mug, plus a plain white mug presumably intended for me. "'I don't doubt that I am ignorant, Your Holiness,' I told Choki Gatso. "'What are the seven rightful branches?' "'Correct mindfulness, correct discernment, correct effort, correct joy, correct pliancy.' Correct meditation, correct equanimity. "'But don't worry about it, your hairiness. "'Perhaps you have the making of a Bodhisattva. "'Perhaps not. "'But for now we simply want to increase your compassion quotient. "'Your education will begin with a simple oath "'honoring Sakyamuni, "'his teachings in the community of monks and nuns he founded. Well, "'That sounds good,' I said, "'inhaling the sweet, oily fragrance of the tea. "'Recite the following vow three times.' I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. I I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. Twice more I repeated the pledge, and then His Holiness gifted me with a kata, a white silk scarf, draping it around my neck. The nun filled his mug with buttered tea, handed him the pot, and slipped away. He proceeded to load my mug beyond its capacity, the greasy amber fluid spilling over the rim, cascading across the tray, flooding the spoons and napkins. "Uh, "'Might I suggest you stop pouring?' I asked. Chogigiatso maintained his posture so that the tray soon held the entire steaming, roiling, eddying contents of the teapot." Like this mug, your mind is filled with useless musings and self-generated afflictions. You will not progress until you shed all such psychic baggage. He pointed toward a huge porcelain bathtub, elevated on four solid brass lion paws to accommodate a brazier for heating the water. And if you are to empty your mind, Taktrakunga... You must first empty this tub, transferring all twenty gallons to the cistern we use for flushing the toilets. I was planning to take a nice warm bath tonight, but that ambition has now fallen away. Uh, where's the bucket? I asked. You will not use a bucket, but rather this implement. chokigatsu reached toward the inundated tea-tray and withdrew a dripping silver spoon.' "'That's ridiculous,' I said. "'Indeed,' Choggy Gyatso said, "'it's completely ridiculous. "'The cistern is at the end of the corridor, "'last room on left. "'What if I refuse?' "'Tak, need I remind you "'that these lessons were your idea? "'In truth, I have better things to do with my time. "'How long will the job take?' "'About seven hours. "'I suggest you get started right after lunch.' "'Do you want me to chant a mantra or or anything?' "'You are not yet ready for meditation, "'but if you insist on chanting something,' "'His Holiness offered a sly wink, "'try the following. "'That's a Smith & Wesson, and you've had your six. (laughs) "'Doctor No, right?' "'The Bodhisattva dipped his head and said, "'To become enlightened is to encounter the perfect void, "'the final knot, the ultimate No.' Alternately, you may wish to ponder the following cone: when a chicken has sex with an egg, which comes first, His Holiness laughed uproariously Und- under normal circumstances, I might have shared his merriment, but I was, I was I was too depressed by the thought of the tedious chore that lay before me. Evidently, it would be best if I didn't ponder anything in particular. I said that is the wisest remark you have made all morning. Cho said. With an aggrieved heart but a curious intellect, I did, as my teacher suggested, consuming my lunch, a bowl of noodle soup, then getting to work, while His Holiness sat rigidly in his study, alternately reading Tsung Kappa's The Great Exposition of the Stages of the Path and Ian Fleming's The Man with the Golden Gun. I ferried twenty gallons of bath water from tub to cistern, one ounce at a time." As Gatsu predicted, the task took all afternoon and well into the evening. Alas, instead of growing vacant, my skull became jammed to the walls with toxic resentments. I I, I wanted to put thorns in his holiness's slippers. I wanted to break his drums and shatter his James Bond DVDs. The job is done, I told my teacher at nine o'clock. Go to your bedchamber, Takhtrakunga. First door on the right, an excellent dinner awaits you, mutton curry with rice. I would suggest that you turn in early. Come morning, the nun will bring you two oranges. After you have savoured their sweet juices and exquisite pulp, you should begin your second labour, which is replenishing the tub. You must be joking. That is correct, Dr. Kunger. I am joking. It's a funny idea, isn't it? Filling the tub you so recently emptied. Very funny, Yes. "'However, please know that come to afternoon I may wish to bathe.' "'I see,' I said evenly. "'Do you?' "'Alas, yes! Might I use a bucket this time?' "'No, sorry, the spoon. "'You should aim to finish by three o'clock, "'whereupon the nun will start warming my bath.' I figured I had no choice, and so the next day, right after consuming my two oranges, which were truly delicious, I spent another seven hours wielding my pathetic spoon, transferring the water ounce by dreary ounce, and midway through the ordeal I realized that my anger at Chogi Gatsu had largely vanished. Here I was, receiving personal instruction in a magnificent religious tradition from the world's most famous holy man. It behooved me to be glad, not to mention grateful. At the very least, I must become like a luscious female operative in thrall to Agent 007, surrendering to my teacher with a willing spirit. Now, let me ask a question, Choki Giazzo said after I'd finished drawing his bath. What if I commanded you to empty the tub all over again? I would gnash my teeth, I replied, and then I would growl like a snow lion, and then I would gasp like a dying climber, and then then I would empty the tub. That is a very good answer, Dr. Now go home to your woman and make love to her long into the night." At the start of the third lunar month, the hulking emissary Lopsang Chokden reappeared in my lair and delivered a new message from His Holiness, but only after once again consuming a mug of pineal gland tea and sorting contemplatively through our skulls. Jogi Gyatso, I now learned, wanted me to return to Sikkim forthwith and seek him out in the new Ganden Monastery. I should anticipate spending four full weeks with His Holiness and pack my luggage accordingly. Twenty-eight days of celibacy, Gawa sneered. Really, Taktrakunga, your guru is asking a lot of you. Me, us, abstinence <laughs> makes the heart grow fonder. I replied. Horse manure. Look, please try to understand. I, I am. I'm not at peace with myself. We passed the rest of the day alternately quarreling and copulating, and the following morning Gala sent me off with her resentful blessing, and I made my way south through the Lachung Pass, pausing to dine on Robin Balaban, an NYU film studies professor, then crossed the border into Sikkim. Digesting Professor Balaban's thoughts, I I came to realize that he'd been troubled by a question that had often haunted me, namely... Why has there never been a good movie about a yeti? Man-Beast, that's atrocious. Half-human is risible. The Snow Beast is a snore. Only the the Hammer film called The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas is remotely watchable, although everyone involved, including star Peter Cushing, writer Nigel Neal, and director Val Guest, went on to make much better thrillers. During the first half of your sojourn here, you will experience intimations of the primordial Buddhist vehicle, the Hinayana, key to purging mental defilements and achieving personal enlightenment, Chogigyatsu said as we connected, hand to paw on the steps of the new Ganden monastery. During the second half of your stay, you will taste of the plenary vehicle, the Mahayana, which aims to cultivate a person's compassion for all living beings through the doctrine of sunyata, emptiness. In the fullness of time, I shall introduce you to the quintessential vehicle, the diamond way, the indestructible Vajrayana. Diamonds are forever, I said. <laughs> probably my favorite 007, but let us not delude ourselves, Taktrakunga, whether Homo sapiens or Candidopithecus, Tibetus, a seeker may need to spend many years, perhaps many lifetimes, pursuing the Hinayana and the Mahayana before he can claim them as his own. And yet, without such grounding, he is unlikely to attain the eternal wakefulness promised by the Rajnayana." Given the immensity of the challenge, let me suggest that we start immediately, I said. There's no time like the present. Right, Your Holiness? No, Takhtrakunga, there's only a time like the present, my teacher corrected me. The past is a tortoise-hair coat. The future is a clam-tooth necklace. I passed the next seven days in the Tathagata Gallery, contemplating the canvases. Four completely white, four completely black his holiness's expectations were clear i must endeavor to fill the featureless spaces with whatever random notions cross my mind imperiled mountaineers tasty yuppie brains voluptuous yeti barmaids crummy abominable snowman movies then imagine these projections catching fire and turning to ash so they would cease to colonize my skull Despite my initial skepticism, before the long week was out, I succeeded in slowing down the rackety engine of my consciousness—the endless kachung, kachung, kachung of my thoughts, the ceaseless harooch, harooch, ha-roosh of my anxieties—or so it seemed. I'm a much calmer person, I told my teacher. Indeed, I think I've achieved near-total equanimity. Does that mean I'm enlightened? "'Give me a break, Taktrakunga.' My second week in the new Gamden monastery confronted me with a different sort of sunyata, the bare trees of the Jokshin Arboretum, their branches bereft of leaves, fruit, and blossoms. This time around, my instructions were to focus my drifting thoughts on the here and now, the luminous, numinous, capacious present. Once again, I profited from my meditations.' Within twenty-four hours, a sublime stillness swelled at the center of my being. I was truly there, inhabiting each given instant, second by millisecond by nanosecond. I did it! I told his holiness i extinguished the past annihilated the future and for now there is only today and for today there is only now i see nirvana is just over the horizon don't crack walnuts in your ass Dr. Kunga. <sighs> My troubles began during week three, which I spent in the hall of empty mirrors, alternately meditating with closed eyes and contemplating with a rapt gaze the twenty-one ornately carved frames, each distinctly lacking a looking-glass. I was now swimming in the ocean of the Mahayana, It would not do for me simply to still my thoughts and occupy the present. I must also shed my ego, scrutinizing my non-self in the non-glass. Goodbye, Taktrakunga. You are an idea at best, a phantasm of your atrophied awareness. No person, place, or thing, or circumstance boasts a stable, inherent existence. Earthly attachments mean nothing. Nothing means everything all is illusion. Flux rules. Welcome to the void. I don't like the Hall of Empty Mirrors, I told His Holiness at the end of week three, from which I'd lamentably emerged more myself, more taktra kunga esque than ever. In, in fact, I detest it. You're in good company, Chogigatso said. When the Buddha first spoke of the quest for Sunyata, thousands of his followers had heart attacks. Then... Perhaps we should omit emptiness from the curriculum. <laughs> a person can no more achieve enlightenment without sunyata than he can make an omelette without eggs. Well, I, I don't want to have a heart attack. To tell the truth, I never believed that story, Chogi Gyatso said. Although it is always disturbing to have the rug pulled out, the fall is rarely fatal. But— if everything is an illusion then isn't the idea that everything is an illusion also an illusion i asked petulantly let's not stoop to sophistry taktrakunga this is contemporary Gangtok, not ancient athens having acquitted myself so poorly in the hall of empty mirrors i anticipated even worse luck in the locus of my fourth and final week the chamber of silence, reminiscent of the padded cells in which Western civilization was once pleased to warehouse its lunatics. My pessimism proved prescient, much as I had enjoyed meditating amid this cacophony of quietude, this mute chorus of one hand clapping, no foot stomping, thirty fish sneezing, forty oysters laughing, and a million dust motes singing. I, I, I was no closer to deposing my sovereign self than when I'd first entered the new Gandan monastery. I, "'I am discouraged, Your Holiness.' "'That is actually good news,' he replied. "'No, no, I mean really discouraged.' You must have patience, better the dense glacier of genuine despair than the brittle ice of false hope. Oh, hairless ones, look, I give you my teacher Chogi Gatsu, the Charlie Chan of the Himalayas, forever dispensing therapeutic aphorisms, and if his holiness was Chan, did that make me his non existent offspring, his favourite illusory child, his number one sunyata Raised by the antelope clan, I'd never known my biological parents who died in the great Kumbu avalanche six months after my birth. In seeking out his holiness, was I really just looking for my father? Well, the more I pondered the question, the more mixed my emotions grew. A hodgepodge, a vortex of incommodious vicus of recirculation, to paraphrase a Joycean scholar I'd once assimilated— Jogi Gatsu bid me farewell. I left the new Ganden monastery and headed for the Lachung Pass as fast as my limbs would carry me, sometimes running on all fours, eager for a sensual reunion with Gawa. Midway through my journey, I again encountered the corpse of Robin Balaban, the, the NYU film professor. His gutted cranium taunted me with a void I'd failed to apprehend in the monastery. I averted my eyes and howled, with despair. My indifference to Professor Balaban's fate, I I realized to my infinite chagrin, was equaled only by my apathy toward his bereaved loved ones. With, With crystal clarity I beheld my benighted mind. I would never awaken. Buddhahood was as far away as the summit of some soaring Jomalungma on another planet, and so I howled again, racked by a self pity born of my inability to pity anyone but myself, then continued on my way. While Chogi Gyatso doubtless regarded me as, as a difficult pupil, perhaps the most exasperating he'd encountered in his present incarnation, the primary menace to his tranquility in those days remained his bitter, restless, firebrand brother. Although Dorji Lingpa had kept his promise to spend the whole of Mon Lam Chenmo in profound meditation, his efforts had proved abortive, and he was now more determined than ever to strike a blow against the Han Chinese. Unenlightened being that I was, I framed Dorji Lingpa's failure in egotistical terms. If His Holiness's blood relatives had difficulty attaining sunyata, then I shouldn't feel so bad about the absence of emptiness in my own life." The intractable condition of Dorje Lingpa's anger became apparent during our next secret pilgrimage to Lhasa. In a tone as devoid of compassion as a brick is devoid of milk, he confessed that he could not shake his mental image of the Brahmaputra gorge swallowing a troop train like the great god Za feeding a string of sausages to the mouth embedded in his stomach. He speculated that this vision might be a sign from heaven, and that Zah himself was telling him to render a divine judgment against the evil ones. His holiness began to weep, the the subtlest display of anguish I'd ever seen, the tears trickling softly down his face like meltwater in spring, his sobs barely audible above the guttural breathing of the seven hairy apes in the yurt. Dorje Lingpa remained adamant the People's Liberation Army, must pay for its crimes. Changing the subject, or so it seemed at the time, he said that shortly after dawn he would like to take His Holiness on a brief excursion in my track inspection vehicle. Then turned to his yeti guests and declared that there would be room for one of us. I told him, I would like to join the party. Thus it happened that shortly after sunrise, Chogyi Gyatso, Dorje Lingpa and I climbed into the open-air section-gang car and began tooling eastwards along the maintenance line at a brisk 80 kilometers per hour, enduring a wind chill from some frigid equivalent of hell. Dorji Lingpa wore his bomber jacket, his holiness sat hunched beneath a yak hide blanket, and I had wrapped myself head to toe in a tarp, not because I minded the cold, but because the surrounding gang-car defied my usual white-on-white camouflage. Suddenly the harsh metallic ball of a diesel horn filled the air, and then— The train appeared, zooming toward us along the adjacent high-speed rails in a great sucking rush that whipped our clothing every which way like prayer flags in a gale. Each passenger-coach was crammed with Han Chinese, some perhaps bound for a holiday in Lhasa, but the majority surely intended to settle permanently. Players in the government's plan to marginalize the native population. Five hundred faces flew past, lined up along the windows like an abacus, assembled from severed heads. Each wore an expression of nauseated misery, a syndrome probably born of the thin air, though I like to imagine they were also suffering spasms of regret over their role in the rout of Tibet. As the morning progressed, Dorji Lingpa's agenda became clear. He meant to give us a guided tour of recent outrages by the Chinese. Periodically, he stopped the gang car and passed us his binoculars so that we could behold yet another exhibit in the Museum of Modern Expediency. The bombed lamaseries, raised temples, trampled shrines, maimed statues— desecrations that the Beijing regime imagined would help stamp out the indigenous cancer of contemplation and replace it with a new state religion, that cruel fusion of normless monopoly capitalism and murderous totalitarianism. Once again, his holiness's eyes grew damp, and now, now he wept "'prolifically, great dollops of salt water "'rolling down his cheeks and freezing on his chest "'so that he soon wore a necklace of tears. "'Knowing of his brother's fascination "'with James Bond's Aston Martin, "'Dorji Lingpa asked if he would like to take the throttle "'during our return trip. "'For a full minute the grieving monk said nothing, "'then offered a nod of disengaged corroboration.' Dorji Lingpa stopped the inspection vehicle, then threw the motor into reverse, we pivoted in our seats, His Holiness gripped the controls, and we were off, retracing our path westward through the scattered shards of the Tibetan soul. Drawing within view of the gorge, we once again heard the blast of a diesel horn, and seconds later we were overtaken by another train from Beijing bearing still more Han into the sacred city. We reached the yurt shortly after two o'clock. Uh, my cousins had prepared a hot luncheon of steamed dumplings, but I, I wasn't hungry, and neither was his holiness. The meal passed languidly and without conversation, and at last Gatsu broke the silence, his resonant and reassuring voice warming the icy air. Beloved brother, he told Dorje Lingpa, that it was a good thing you did taking us across the plateau. I understand you much better now. I'm grateful for your praise, the trainman said. Will you join my war against the People's Liberation Army? <laughs> what do you think? Chokigatsu asked. I think I should not count on your participation. That is correct. I am reminded of an old joke, Cousin Niguang said a man went to a priest in the north of Ireland and confessed that he'd blown up six miles of British railroad track. And the priest said, he says, For your penance, you must go out and do the stations. Very amusing, Cousin Joa said, and decidedly droll, Cousin Drebung said. But no one laughed, most especially myself, and most conspicuously, Jogi Gyatso, and most predictably, Dorje Ling Pa. My third tutorial with his holiness took me to the fabled Bedhaha temple of cosmic desire, the very loins as it were of the Gangtok Buddhist complex, famous throughout Asia for its six thousand masterpieces of erotic art. Despite his celibacy, or perhaps because of it, Chogi Gyatso held a generally approving attitude toward the sex act, and he believed that my embarrassing performance in the monastery, notwithstanding the meditation practices pursued in the Bebhaha temple, might occasion my awakening. Moreover, this time around, I would be following a regimen drawn from His Holiness's specialty— the tantric path, the diamond discipline, the venerable Vajrayana. The mystic principle behind the temple was straightforward enough. Sangyang Gyatso, Jatso, the sixth Dalai Lama, had put it very well. If one's thoughts toward the Dharma, he said, were of the same intensity as those towards physical love, one would become a Buddha in this very body, in this very life. And so it was that I spent a week in Gangtok's spiritual red-light district, contemplating hundreds of paintings and sculptures depicting sexual ensembles, couples, trios, quartets, quintets, human, yeti, divine, biologically mixed, taxonomically diverse, ontologically scrambled, engaged— In every sort of carnal congress, homoerotic, heteroerotic, autoerotic, even surrealistic images of copulating trees and randy pocket watches, playfully signed, Salvador Dalai Lama. I seethed with lust. I stroked myself to torrential spasms. At one point, His Holiness suggested that I take up with the kind of sexual consort known as a karma mundra— An an action seal, so named because the practice sealed or solidified the seeker's understanding that all phenomena are a union of ecstasy and emptiness. I declined this provocative invitation, feeling that His Holiness's syllabus had already put enough strain on my relationship with Gawa. Even as I wrapped my hand round my cock, I I sought to keep my eye on the ball— the idea was to gather up all this libidinous energy, this tsunami of seed, and through diligent meditation and focused chanting, channel it toward sunyata, detachment and boundless pity for the suffering of all sentience. From Onanism to Om Mani Padme, oh yes, that was the grand truth of the Tantra, and it was an ingenious strategy of masturbate and switch. "'And I did my best, O depilated ones. "'You must believe me. "'I truly played to win. "'I tried,' I told Shogi Gyatso as I stumbled out of the Bebhaha Temple. "'All passion spent. "'I tried, and I failed. immerse me in the Tantra, and my thoughts turned to wanking, not awakening. "'Let's face it, Your Holiness.' I was not made for the Vajrayana, nor the Mahayana either, nor even the Hinayana. You are probably right, but I must also say this, takthrakunga, Your attitude sucks. Well, well so the half of your deities. Might we try one final tantric lesson? At the start of the tenth lunar month, come to the Antara-Bahaba charnel ground on the slopes of Mount Jelepla, eight kilometers to the northeast. You will know it by the vultures wheeling overhead. I shrugged and said, I suppose I have nothing to lose. No, you have everything to lose, His Holiness reproached me. That is the whole point. Lose your illusions, lose your goals, lose your ego, lose the world, and only then will you come to know the wonder of it all. Oh, smooth ones, you might think that an ape whose lair was appointed with skulls would revel in the ambience of the Antar-Bahava charnel ground, but in fact I found it a completely ghastly place with a seething soup of shucked bones, strewn teeth, rotting flesh, disembodied hair, fluttering shrouds, buzzing flies, busy worms, industrious crows, and enraptured vultures. By Chiogi Getzo's account, two geographical circumstances accounted for this rather macabre ecology— Because wood was scarce in Tibet, uh, cremation had never become the norm, and, uh, thanks to the rocky and often frozen soil, interment was equally uncommon. Instead, Tibetans had resorted to the colorful custom of sky burial, uh, dismembering the corpse and leaving the components in a high, open place to be consumed by jackals and carrion birds. Death, decay, and transmigration, the three fundamental facts of existence, His Holiness said— "'I want to go home,' I said, my eyes watering and my brain reeling from the foulness of it all. The stench was itself a kind of raptor pecking at my sinuses, nibbling at the lining of my throat.' The sorrowful cycle of samsara, Jogi Gyatso persisted, the wretched wheel of life turning and turning in the widening gyre, but there is no rough beast taktrakunga, no Bethlehem, only more turning, more suffering, more turning, more suffering. Sean Connery is reborn as George Lazenby, who is reborn as Roger Moore, who is reborn as Timothy Dalton, who is reborn as Pierce Brosnan, who is reborn as Daniel Craig, who is reborn as Brian Flaherty. It can be much worse, of course, a person might spend his life deliberately harming other sentient beings. Owing to this bad karma, he will come back as an invertebrate, a miserable, crawling thing, or else a hungry ghost, or maybe even a hell-being. Agent 007, if he truly existed, would probably be a dung-beetle now. So it goes, Taktrakunga. You can't win, you can't break even, but you can get out of the game. "'You didn't get out of the game,' I noted, staring at my feet. "'You keep opting for reincarnation. "'That does not mean I like it. "'If your brother sends a troop-train into the gorge, "'how many lifetimes will he need to discharge his karmic debt? "'A hundred? "'A thousand? "'A million? "'I don't want to talk about my brother,' Chogi Yatsu said, "'placing his open palm beneath my shaggy simian chin "'and directing my gaze toward the open-air ossuary. "'Behold!' Bearing a narrow palanquin on which lay a robe-wrapped corpse, a solemn procession shuffled into view. Monks, mourners, tub-haulers, and a team of specialists that His Holiness identified as rogyapas, body-cutters. Expectant vultures arrived from all points of the compass, and after finding relatively uncluttered space, the palanquin-bearers set down their burden— "'whereupon the rogyapas secured the corpse with ropes and pegs, "'lest the birds claim it too soon,' His Holiness explained. "'Availing themselves of the tub, the monks next washed the body "'in a solution scented with saffron and camphor, "'thereby making the flesh more pleasing to the nostrils of its feathered beneficiaries. (laughs) "'Your religion is good with details,' I noted.' In giving his body to scavengers, the deceased is performing an act of great charity, Chogi Gyatso explained. Even as we speak, that person's hovering consciousness negotiates the bardo, the gap between his present life and his next incarnation. He is presently confronting a multitude of confusing sights, sounds, smells, textures, and tastes, as well as hordes of tantric deities, some peaceful, others wrathful, each spawned by his mind. It's all in the bardo-tirol. We, "'We should try selling it to the movies,' I said. tak dra shut up!' After drawing out their sharp, gleaming knives, the body-cutters went to work, opening the corpse's chest, removing the internal organs, and slicing the flesh from the skeleton. The rogyapas mashed up the bones with stone hammers, then mixed the particles with barley, flour, a proven vulture delicacy.' Oh, what are we doing here, I moaned, seizing His Holiness by the shoulders? We are here to relieve the suffering of other sentient beings. Haven't you been paying attention? Uh, no, I, I mean, what are we doing here? Why are we in this demented alfresco cemetery? We are here to meditate on tatata, suchness, the true nature of reality. Only after... A large quantity of flesh and bone had been prepared, with the vultures allowed into the ceremony, a, a precaution that kept them from fighting among themselves. The Rogyopas carried the offerings to a large slab of rock decorated with a geometric representation of the universe, then systematically pitched the portions one by one toward the center of the circle. Meanwhile, one particularly athletic rogyopa swung a large rope across the inscribed outcropping, discouraging the raptors from entering the mandala before the proper time. "'Take me away!' I wailed. "'I can't stand this place! Class dismissed!' "'Is that truly your wish?' His Holiness asked. "'Yes, it's over! Allons-y! I am the worst student you have ever had!' "'That would appear to be the case!' The rope-swinger stilled his cord and stepped aside, fluttering, shrieking, squawking, and for all I know, chanting praises to their patrons, the appreciative vultures descended. "'I don't want to be enlightened,' I cried. "'I want Gawa. I want my cousins. I want onion bagels and Peniel gland tea and Prokofiev and Fred Astaire and the Marx Brothers. I want all my stupid, worthless, impermanent toys.' The Bodhisattva shrugged, and, taking my paw in his hand, began leading me toward Gangtok. thak I am disappointed in you. I don't doubt it. Let me offer a word of counsel, His Holiness said. When lying on your deathbed, strive mightily to release these negative energies of yours. You won't be reborn a Buddha, but you won't come back an insect either. Speaking personally, I hope you remain a giant ape." You do that very well. The earth turned, the wheel of life revolved, and exactly one year after hearing Georgi Lingpa declare his intention to wreck a Mau, Mau troop train, my cousins and I once again found ourselves huddled drowsily behind his yurt on the eve of Monlan Chemno. We did not expect to get much sleep. Chogy Yatso and his half-brother had stayed up late, arguing over the necessity of destroying the Brahmaputra Bridge. They had found no points of accord. Bad karma suffused the gorge like the stench of a charnel ground. I awoke shortly after sunrise, tired, bleary, miserable, I then stumbled into the yurt. My cousins occupied the dining table, playing seven-card stud. His Holiness and Dorje Lingpa sat in the breakfast nook, eating oranges and drinking buttered tea. A flush, said Cousin Joa, displaying five hearts. Well, beats my straight— said Cousin Nima, disclosing his hand. The plaintive moan of a diesel horn fissured the frosty air. "'A troop transport,' Dorje Lingpa noted. "'Over the years I've come to know each train by its call "'like a hunter identifying different species of geese by their hunks.' "'A second mournful wail arose, rattling the circular roof. "'The train is exactly nine miles away,' Dorje Lingpa said. "'It will be here in six and a half minutes.' "'Dear brother, your mind is crammed with useless knowledge,' Chogi Gyatso said. "'That horn is a death knell,' Dorje Lingpa continued. "'Listen carefully, brother. The train is peeling its own doom.' "'What are you talking about?' I asked." A long, malevolent, za like grin bisected Dorji Lingpa's melon face. I am talking about a bridge bristling with sticks of dynamite. I'm talking about a detonator attached to the high-speed track. I'm talking about headlines in tomorrow's Beijing Times, the next day's Washington Post. He brushed his brother's shaved head, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Nothing. His Holiness's favorite concept. Long live Double O Seven! You can imagine my surprise, therefore, when Chogi Gatso leapt up, fled the yurt, and dashed toward the railroad siding. "'Bad idea!' I yelled, giving chase. "'I think not!' His Holiness replied. I drew abreast of Choki Gyatso, surpassed him, depositing my furry bulk in his path. He circumnavigated me and lurched toward the rusting turnabout, connecting the maintenance track to the Lassa line. "'Om man ne padne hum!' he chanted, seizing the steel lever and throwing the switch. "'What are you doing?' I demanded. Actually, it was quite obvious what he was doing. He was contriving to reconfigure the rail so that he might drive the gang car west along the high-speed line, hit the bridge, and trip the detonator.' "'Passivism is not passivity,' he noted, then headed for the gang car. "'The explosion will warn the engineer to stop the train. "'No, that's crazy! Don't!' Now Dorje Lingpa appeared on the scene, grabbing His Holiness around the waist, with the evident intention of hauling him to the ground. The diesel horn bellowed louder than ever. "'I was there, O shiny ones. "'I saw the whole amazing incident. "'For the first time in seven hundred years, a Dalai Lama decked somebody with a roundhouse right, in this case his own beloved brother. James Bond, swinging his fists through a yeti, delivering a glog punch, could not have felled Dorji Lingpa so successfully. As the trainmen lay in the snow, stunned and supine, my clan arrived, grappling hooks in hand, climbing ropes slung over their shoulders like huge epaulets. Cousin Wang placed a hairy foot on Dorji Lingpa's chest. "'Your brother is a brave man,' the ape declared." The diesel horn screamed across the valley. His Holiness climbed into the inspection vehicle and assumed the controls. "'After I have passed the turnout, kindly throw the switch to its former position,' he instructed me. "'We don't want to save the train from my brother's vengeance, only to derail it through negligence.' "'You don't understand,' I cried. "'All is an illusion. That train, it's not real. The soldiers aren't real. There is no suchness except what exists in your mind.' "'Don't be silly,' His Holiness said, putting the motor in gear. "'I love you, Dr. Kunga,' he added, and was off. The gang-car rattled out of the yard, frogged onto the lasso line, and raced away at full throttle. I planted myself squarely on the maintenance track, the better to see Chogi Gatso depart his present incarnation.' An instant later, the car reached the bridge and continued across a caterpillar crawling along a hissing firecracker. The wheel flanges hit the detonator and there came forth a deafening explosion that catapulted the car, its passenger, a hundred meters into the air. A plume of fire and ash billowed upward from the shattered span. Flames licked the sheer blue sky. The vehicle succumbed to gravity and my former teacher hung briefly in the swirling smoke as if suspended on the breath of a thousand thwarted demons, a miracle truly befitting the bardo of a bodhisattva, and then he fell. I am pleased to report that His Holiness's scenario played out largely as he'd imagined, with the troop train's engineer slamming on the pneumatic brakes the instant the kaboom of the dynamite reached his ears. The wheels locked, flanges squealing against the icy rails, leaving five hundred Mau mal soldiers at the mercy of the fickle friction. The gargantuan locomotive skated crazily, dragging its fourteen coaches toward the abyss. By this time my cousins, no strangers to the laws of physics, had arrayed themselves along both sides of the tracks, gear in hand, waiting for the train. I threw the switch, as His Holiness had requested, then climbed a snowy knoll from which vantage I beheld my worthy clan improvise a grand act of salvation. "'Hurry!' I shouted superfluously. Moving in perfect synchronicity, the apes hurled the six grappling irons toward the rolling coaches, smashing the windows and securing the hooks solidly within the frames. "'Such lovely beasts!' I cried. Having successfully harpooned the passing train, my cousins allowed the ropes to pay out briefly. Then they tightened their grips— Still skidding, the locomotive towed the six Yeti along the roadbed like an outboard motorboat pulling multiple water-skiers. Spumes of ice and snow spewing upward from their padded heels. In a matter of seconds, the momentum shifted in compassion's favor. The train slowed and slowed and slowed. I shouted for joy. The boom-god smiled. "'Chow!' my clan cried in a single voice. "'Chow! Jump! Chow! Jump! chow, Chow! Chow!' The soldiers rushed toward the coach doors in a tumult of brown uniforms, gleaming rifles, and wide-eyed faces. They jumped, spilling pell-mell from the decelerating train like Norway rats abandoning a sinking steamer. My, my cousins, satisfied, released the ropes and headed for the hills, determined that this would not be the day of their unmasking. Sprawled in the roadbed, the perplexed but grateful Mau gasped and sputtered. The engineer abandoned his post none too soon, leaping from the cab, scarcely thirty seconds before the coasting locomotive and its vacant coaches glided majestically across the burning bridge, reached the rift, and hurtled off the tracks. Seconds later, the train hit the river, the thunderous crash echoing up and down the gorge. Before the eventful morning ended, my clan and I, along with Dorje Lingpa, managed to sneak within view of the Brahmaputra and observe the twisted consequences of His Holiness's courage. Having shattered the river's normal sheet of ice, that hot locomotive and its strewn coaches clogged the current like vast carrots floating in an immense stew. I scanned the steaming wreckage. The corpse of Chogyi Gyatso was easy to spot. His saffron and burgundy robe rose vividly against the bright white flow that was his bier. "Forgive me, brother," Dorji Lingpa said. "Goodbye, your holiness," Cousin Yangwang said. "Farewell, beloved monk," Cousin Jowa said. "I hope you've gone to heaven," Cousin Dribung said. "Do lamas believe in heaven?" Cousin Yangduk asked. Well, "Rebirth," Cousin Garap explained. "'Then I hope you've been reborn,' Cousin Drebung said. "'Though they don't come any better than you,' Cousin Nima noted. "'I attempted to speak, but my tongue had gone numb, "'my throat was clamped shut, and my lungs were filled with stones.' The clan and I bore Chogi Gyatso's dead body far down the frozen river and secured it behind a boulder, lest the People's Liberation Army come upon it while investigating the loss of their train. As I knelt before the dead Bodhisattva and began to partake of his brain, I decided that this Nang du Zul would mark a new phase in my life. No, I did not forswear meat knowledge, to which I was addicted and always would be, but from now on I promised myself... I would cease to kill my prey. I would instead become like the charnel ground raptors, leaving my nourishment to the whims of chance, consuming only such human flesh as my karma merited. Yes, O oh, glossy ones, eventually I realized that I should not simply demure from devouring a stranded climber. I should also summon a rescue party. So far I haven't endeavored to save anyone's life, even though such altruism would hardly compromise my species' security, for the Sherpas already know we exist, and they would never dream of betraying us to either a Mau, Mau patrol or an Everest entrepreneur, but old habits die hard. Give me a little time. I wish I could say that some political good came of His Holiness's deliverance of the Mau Mau soldiers. In fact, the ugly status quo persists with Tibetan culture still withering under the iron boot of the People's Liberation Army, may they rot in hell. As for Dorji Lingpa, he was never officially fired from his job with the National Railroad. Instead, he was arrested, tortured with a cattle prod, imprisoned for five years, tortured again, and hung. The moral of his sorry life is simple. If you want to be a successful insurgent, don't practice on Chinese communists. When I told the Pashin Lama where to find Choki Gyatso's body, he did not at first believe me. But then I, I began laying out the evidence, a grappling iron, the Beijing Times headline, his holiness's white silk scarf, and the monks dispatched a recovery team to the Brahmaputra River Gorge. No sky burial, of course, for Chogy Gyatso, no vultures for his holiness. The monks cremated him on the grounds of the new Gamden monastery, then set about searching for his reincarnation. At last report, they'd located a promising three-year-old in the village of Yangsi. So what is it like to be enlightened? What rarefied phenomenon does a bodhisattva perceive? I regret to say that the gift was largely wasted on me. To be sure, shortly after eating Chogi Gyatso's cerebrum, I found myself praying compulsively, chanting incessantly, and meditating obsessively, much to Gawa's consternation, and for a few incandescent days I saw the world as he had, lambent and fair and full of woe, abrim with beings who, without exception, every one, each and all, deserved my unqualified kindness. But my wisdom did not endure. It it faded like the westering sun, and what I shall recall of ecstatic emptiness cannot be framed in any language human or simian. I suppose this loss was to be expected. As these pages attest, I was always a lousy candidate for wakefulness. In In my heart, I'm a child of that other enlightenment, the one personified by such cheeky contrarians as Voltaire, Thomas Paine, Benjamin Franklin. At the end of the day, I'm a Carpe diem kind of creature, a rationalist, really, uh, the sort of primate who can't help wondering whether a compassion born of emptiness might not be an empty compassion indeed. I love my life, I treasure my attachments. That is not about to change. True, this ape may eventually evolve in the Darwinian sense, but for now I shall leave transcendence to the professionals. That said, I am endlessly honored to have been his student. My gestures of remembrance are small, but constant. Every night, after making love to Gawa, I stare into the blackness of our lair and give voice to the lovely words he taught me, saying, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, and take refuge in the Sangha. And then, relaxing, drifting, I lay my head on the yak hair pillow. Gawa snores beside me. The dying embers crackle, I close my eyes, quiet my mind, and dream of my friend, His Holiness, the Fifteenth Dalai Lama. This is Larry Santoro speaking to you now in anticipation of some vigorous disagreement that might be coming my way with the rendering I did of Takhtra as a somewhat demented cross between Senator Bernie Sanders and Woody Allen, and my reading of the 15th Dalai Lama and the voice of A.J. Patel, the sous chef at Mahal Restaurant up the way. My anticipation is all the more quivery because James Morrow scares the hell out of me. You see, Whenever a guy who is principally a writer like myself undertakes to publicly read someone else's work, the tendency is to write oneself into the story. Okay, that's my tendency. Normally this doesn't bother me. I'm pretty secure in the choices I make as an actor. Uh, An actor has to be, otherwise he stops being effective. With James Morrow's work, however, funny, wifty, punny as it is, The ground under my feet, so to speak, gets a little shifty. His work is funny, it's irreverent, yet it's as smart as, well, it's a lot smarter than I am. It's more erudite, anyway. I keep hearing Dr. Charles Kessler, my ancient history prof from an early undergrad incarnation making the public crack about me that Mr. Santoro doesn't actually know anything, he just gets by on glibness. I think I've mentioned this before. With Bigfoot and the Bodhisattva, my glibness was off the table. Not only do I know almost nothing about Tibetan or any kind of Buddhism, I can't even say most of the names of the characters or the concepts uh, in this rather subtly brilliant story. So, first, my apologies go to Mr. Morrow. But you did write that Thak was most recently living within the meat knowledge of one Dexter Sherwood, a professor of comparative literature at Princeton. And since all New Jersey-based professors of literature are the children of Talmudic scholars from Brooklyn, I figured the Bernie sanders Woody Allen confluence would be about right. As my experience of comparative lit professors extends only so far as Dr. Myron Talby, the the choice may have been a glib one. Uh, Second, my apologies to Buddhists everywhere. Tony gave me this story about six months ago. At the time, I was deeply self-involved with three projects, writing and selling. So I put it aside. I put it aside, mainly, however, because it scared the crap out of me. I couldn't even pronounce the title with any degree of confidence. Forget Dorje Linkpa and Chyogi Gyatso and all the rest. It took me about five months to get up the courage to begin reading it aloud to myself in the bathroom late at night. And then I did come down, in fact, with a mother of sinus infections. Then, well, I put it on tape. More than two hours worth at first recording. And when all the obvious screw-ups and curses were cut, it shows up at a nice hour, 18 minutes and 13 seconds. And so I also apologize for reading fast. I normally go slow, Um uh, With this, though, I I didn't want to linger over the obvious or press too hard on the subtle. So listen to it again to catch the puns and such. Well, anyway, enough of this. Uh, Mr. Morrow, I hope you are a forgiving man. Listeners, if you are of the Buddhist persuasion, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. That's it for me for now. I hope to be talking to you soon again, uh, this time with a story of my own to tell, most of which I'll probably understand and much of which I'll be able to pronounce, even in my glibness. This is Larry Santoro on a gorgeous fall day in Chicago, USA. There
2: you go. Can't say better than that, you know, th- that's why, you know, I'm truly in agreement with myself, you know, people might not agree, but I think that's why Starship Sova won the Hugo Award. Artwork for that story was fantastic, the story itself was fantastic, and, you know, I'm not blowing you on trumpet, but the interviews just give you that little kind of glimpse into the other side or the other workings of, you know, a writer, and for Larry to come over at the end of it and... To tell it all about, you know, how he got the kind of narration and how he struggled as well. Do you know what I mean? Fantastic. <music> Next up, we have J.J. Campanella with his
6: Science News for October. Jim, sir. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this October 2010 Science News Update. I'm your host for this evening, Jim Campanella. You'll have to forgive me tonight. I'm just getting over a cold, and my usual dulcet tones may not be up to snuff. Let's just get going here. I have some seriously cool stuff to tell you about. To begin, you may remember that we have been keeping abreast of the newest exoplanet information for the last year or so on this podcast. NASA has just released some statistics that are kind of interesting in relation to exoplanets and the exoplanet search. First, for those of you who are new to the podcast or do not remember what an exoplanet is, it's simply a planet that has been detected outside of our solar system. In other words, a planet orbiting some other star. So as of September 2010, after 15 years of looking for exoplanets orbiting distant suns, astronomers have made the following great strides. By the way, the first exoplanet was discovered 15 years ago. Number one. They have found 490 confirmed exoplanets, which is quite a number. Two, there are 45 stars that have multiple exoplanets that have been detected. Three, the stars HD 10180 and 55 Cancri have been confirmed to be the record holders for the stars which have the most planets orbiting around them. That is five exoplanets each. Four, the heaviest exoplanet is HD 43848 at 25 Jupiter masses. Five, the largest exoplanet in terms of diameter is CT Cha b at 2.2 Jupiter diameters. Six, the smallest exoplanet found, which we reported on a couple of months ago, is Corot 7b, which is 1.7 Earth diameters. And finally, number seven, here's the one you've all been waiting for. Out of those 490, how many habitable exoplanets have astronomers found? And the answer is... None. Zero. Zilch. Nada. Not a one. That's a serious worry among astronomers and among astrobiologists. Why? Well, there's three reasons. First... Statistically, at least according to the Drake equation, habitable planets should not be so rare. The Drake equation is an equation used by the SETI folks to estimate the potential number of extraterrestrial civilizations in the Milky Way. It also has as part of it an approximation of the number of habitable planets. Now, we're not talking about planets with life here. We're talking simply about temperate planets with oxygen and water. According to the Drake equation, 10% of all stars should have habitable planets. Well, so far that appears way wrong. It would suggest that we should have found 20 to 50 habitable planets so far. And, well, so far it looks as if that type of planet is about as common as hen's teeth or an honest New Jersey politician. Now, there is an irony here. One thing that the scientists have not widely considered yet is that it may actually take life to stabilize the air and water systems of a planet. It may be that without living organisms, it's impossible to stabilize such a planet-wide system. My conclusion is that if life is very rare, then habitable planets may be very rare indeed, or just as rare as life is. The second worry the scientists have is that habitable planets with life somehow tend to get either killed off or kill themselves off somehow. In this case, we're equating life with just being habitable. The prediction is that there is a limiting factor out there that all intelligent civilizations finally come up against. They discover some horrendous new tech, like the anti-gravity anti-matter bomb that destroys all life on the planet. Or perhaps all civilizations eventually poison themselves with their toxins, This would explain why we have never detected a civilization older than ourselves out there. Shouldn't there be a whole bunch, or at least one, according to the Drake equation? And shouldn't their radio or TV signals have reached us a long time ago? It's possible that we are a very young planet, and a very young species, and that we are looking out there at many, many dead planets. The scientists, of course, are worried that we may go the way of those other civilizations, And now they are trying to figure out exactly what the fabled limiting factor may be. The final, most dreaded possibility of all to the hardcore scientists is that several thousand years of Judeo-Christian religion may be right. Humans may actually be unique in this universe. Humans may actually be alone in this endless void with just ourselves and our creator for company. We may actually be special and the center of all creation. What if we continue to find nothing but rock balls and gas giants out there? What conclusion will we come to then? Well, whatever you believe, I'll just leave those thoughts for you to ponder. Onwards and upwards. This next story is for those of you who have noted my odd use sometimes of accents to, uh, well, accentuate quotes of scientists during certain stories. There is actually a long and hallowed use of such dialects in radio. I refer you to the audio logs of legendary radio figures such as Reckon Tour Gene Shepard. My own use of voices has always been done in fun for entertainment purposes and not to denigrate anyone. Long-time listeners to the show will note that over the years I have used almost as many silly American accents as any other accents. Some listeners have written to me applauding my use of voices to keep the stories interesting, and, well, others have been less than enchanted with the silliness. Dr. Shiri Levari of the University of Chicago published a study in the last month in the Journal of Experimental Psychology having to do with accents and credibility. The researchers in the study asked participants to listen to pre-recorded trivia statements and rate them on a scale of truthfulness. Participants ranked heavily accented speakers at an average of 6.84 on the truthfulness scale, compared to 7.5 for native English speakers. That is seriously worrying and disturbing. What's even more disturbing is that a subsequent experiment showed that even when participants were informed about the nature of the testing and what was being tested, their trust in heavily accented speakers was unchanged. That means that even though the subjects knew they were expected to mistrust the accents, they went along with that expectation and continued to mistrust the non-native speakers. In short, their unconscious bias was unaffected by being told about it. Lev Ari, the lead author in the study, said, The problem here with accents is that they might reduce the credibility of non-native job seekers, eyewitnesses, reporters, or people taking calls in foreign call offices. English speakers, both in the UK and the United States, have a love of silly and endearing accents. I refer you to Balky from the sitcom Perfect Strangers, the Festrunk Brothers from Saturday Night Live, the Count from Sesame Street, or Manuel from *Faulty Towers. To complicate this all, the contempt of foreign cadences might not surprise those of us well versed in American pop culture, all the best villains have accents. Look at the Die Hard movies, or Schwarzenegger's original Terminator, or Boris Battenoff from Rocky and Bullwinkle. And again, the Brits may not be much better with accented villains like Dr. No or Blofeld from the Bond movies. Where am I going with this? Because I do not want listeners to be laughing at an accent, as opposed to listening to the content of the stories I present. I will stop doing silly voices on this section of the show. If it is true that funny accents make things less believable, then I am doing a disservice to the scientists, whether they be from Texas or India. So let's put our prejudices behind us and focus not on whether we can trust accented English speakers, but on what they have to teach us. If you want to hear funny voices from me, then listen to the SF stories that I narrate here on the sofa. The next story speaks to a certain level of hopelessness that I'm feeling at the moment for my memory, which seems to be slowly leaving me as I enter middle age. This is natural, as anyone will tell you. However, there appears to be a history of dementia in my family for anyone who lives long enough. I had three great aunts who lived into their 90s, but they didn't show serious signs of Alzheimer's until they reached their late 80s. My dad is in his late 70s now, and I'm beginning to worry about his grasp of memory. I suspect that if I make it as far as my great-aunts did, then treatments will be available to keep memory quite viable even into old age. But at present, there are no such treatments, and I dread what might happen to my father. I thought that since he keeps his mind sharp by reading, puzzles, etc., that he could stave off a major portion of the effects if they ever crop up. But even that hope seems to be dissipating now reports over the last couple of years have suggested that mental exercise lets seniors outrun Alzheimer's disease. And that appears to be true, but the newest findings are that it's only for a while. A new study from Dr. Robert Wilson of Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, which was published in September's Neurology, reminds us that scientists never really know what's actually going on until they have the whole story, and sometimes not even then. Wilson has found that the race takes a tragic turn for the sharp-minded person, as declines in memory and other thinking skills kick into high gear. So you are essentially faced with either a slow meltdown or an explosive loss of mental skills over a short period. And frankly, neither one is very appealing. Wilson studied 1,157 healthy Chicago residents with a range of incomes and ethnic backgrounds ages 65 and older. To gauge mental activity levels, participants reported on how often they watched television, visited museums, played cards or other games, listened to radio, read newspapers, magazines, or books. Each person underwent two or three evaluations over six years. At the end of that period, the researchers identified 148 individuals with Alzheimer's disease and 395 volunteers with milder forms of brain disease. Those who initially reported high overall rates of mental activity displayed pronounced cognitive declines after being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Mentally inactive adults who developed the brain disease suffered moderate cognitive hits. Given individual differences in severity and the onset of Alzheimer's disease, these findings are consistent with a delay of months or years in cognitive decline among mentally active adults, followed by plummeting mental faculties. Quote, this cognitive trade-off of rapid dementia is a good one if a mentally active person suffers from clinical symptoms of Alzheimer's disease for a shorter period of time, Unquote, says Wilson. Still, that is cold comfort if you or a family member has the possibility of getting that dementia. Wilson and his group are now looking for genetic and biological markers which can predict whether Alzheimer's may be on the horizon for you. The next story of the night is an update on yellow crazy ants. Yes, another ant story. It's been a while, hasn't it? You may remember from a few months back that I talked about yellow crazy ants being a scourge on certain islands of the Pacific. The ants get their name from their color and their zigzagging scurrying and they have crowded out native ants and disrupted ecosystems all over the Pacific. The invaders meet any foe aggressively and release noxious chemicals during battle. A report by Dr. Thomas C. Wanger of the University of Göttingen in the Proceedings of the Royal Society has finally found a predator that can fight back against the ants. It turns out that the common Sulawesi toad in Indonesia is a prodigious eater of ants even aggressive invading ones. On the island of Sulawesi, the toads readily feast on yellow crazy ants, which are colonizing the island, just like they are in other tropical locations. During a week of toad abundance on Sulawesi farms, test plots hopping with toads had as little as one-third of the invasive ant populations found on plots where fencing kept the toad out. Wanger and his colleagues established that the toads disproportionately prey on ants based on the toads' fecal samples. Quote, you wouldn't believe how smelly these things are, unquote. The poop samples revealed that some kind of ant accounted for three-quarters of the diet of the toads storming through the test region, even though ants didn't represent a large proportion of the arthropods there. Native ants presumably have long coexisted on the island with the toads, but populations of invaders may be taking a hit. The test plots lay in cacao plantations, and the researchers speculate that the toads' taste for ants may turn out to be a boon for cacao pest control. About every three months, the toads leave their usual forest home and surge through the cacao plantations to breed in the water of neighboring rice fields. Toads feasting on yellow crazy ants may help to keep the invaders from crowding out the native ants and the cacao plantations. Other researchers have shown that a rich diversity of native ants helps keep the cacao pests and diseases in check. The authors make an interesting observation about the difficulty in protecting native wildlife in connection to the frog. Basically, the Indonesian Sulawesi natives could not care much less about native animal diversity than they do, but they will protect the frogs if they feel it is of economic importance to them. The last story of the night concerns a silly conversation I had with my two-year-old, Elijah. My wife and I are still teaching him to communicate, and I was asking him about the properties of different animals. I asked him if cows could fly, and he looked at me funny and said, Of course not. Actually, he said, Doh! That is Eli's no. Not quite like Homer Simpson, but pretty close. Then I asked if cats could fly, and he again told me, Doh! after looking at me like I was nuts. Can birds swim, I asked. He hesitated on this one, since he has seen ducks swimming in a stream in the nearby park. Now, we have an aquarium, and he knows how fish swim, which is not how ducks swim. So he was not quite sure how to answer that one. He didn't want to just jump right in and say yes, but eventually I got a very careful and thoughtful yes from him. Finally, I asked, do fish fly, Elijah? And I got an unequivocal answer out of him. D'oh! That's silly! Now it was my turn to hesitate. Okay, Eli, you are right. Most fish do not fly. I did not finish with except for flying fish, because I would have just confused the poor little guy. But I got to thinking about flying fish. And I realized I've known about flying fish and that they exist since I was a little kid. But I don't know anything about them. I know they glide and don't fly, but that's about it. Now, out of curiosity, I looked into flying fish and was amazed. I always thought that they glided a few feet and then just fell back into the water, but I was wrong. It appears that flying fish can remain airborne for over 40 seconds, covering distances up to 400 meters at speeds of 70 kilometers per hour. 400 meters is more than the length of four American football fields. I was astounded when I read that, and the first thought in my mind was, how in the heck do they stay up in the air for that long? As serendipity would have it, in the latest issue of the Journal of Experimental Biology, there was my answer. Not unlike myself, Dr. Heijian Choi, a mechanical engineer from Seoul National University, became fascinated by flying fish while reading a science book to his children and he decided to find out how it is that these fish can stay aloft. Dr. Choi could not commercially buy any flying fish for testing. So, after quite a while of frustration, he headed out into the East Korean Sea on a boat manned by fishermen from the National Federation of Fisheries Cooperatives of Korea. Park successfully landed 40 dark-edged wing flying fish. Selecting five similarly sized fish, Park took them to the Korean Research Center of Maritime Animals, where they were dried and stuffed, some with their fins extended as in flight, and one with its fins held back against its body. These were basically ready to be tested for their aerodynamics in a wind tunnel. Fitting six axis force sensors to the fish's wings and tilting the fish's body at angles ranging from minus 15 degrees to 45 degrees Park measured the forces on the flying fish's fins as he simulated flight. Calculating the flying fish's lift-to-drag ratios, a measure of the horizontal distance traveled relative to the descent in flight during glide, Park found that the flying fish performed remarkably well, gliding better than insects and as well as birds such as petrels and wood ducks. When he analyzed how the fish's lift-to-drag ratio changed as they varied the tilt angle, he found that the ratio was highest and the fish glided furthest when they were parallel to the surface, which is exactly what they do above the ocean. Measuring the airborne fish's pitching moment, he found that the fish were very stable as they flew. However, when he analyzed the stability of the fish with its fins swept back into the swimming position, the fish were very unstable. And that's exactly what you need for aquatic maneuverability as opposed to flying. So flying fish are superbly adapted for life both in the air and in the water. Knowing flying fish almost always fly near the surface of the sea, Park then decided to find out if the fish derived any benefit from the aerodynamic effect of flying close to the surface. Lowering the fish's height in the wind tunnel, they found that the lift-to-drag ratio increased as the fish glided near the floor. When Park replaced the solid surface and put the fish over a tank of water, the lift-to-drag ratio rose even more, allowing the fish to theoretically glide even further. So gliding near the surface of the sea helps the fish to go further. Finally, Park directly visualized the air currents passing around the flying fish's wings and body. He blew streams of smoke over the fish and saw jets of air accelerating back along the fish's body. Park said, quote, the arrangement of the large pectoral fin at the front and smaller pelvic fin at the back of the fish's body accelerates the airflow toward the tail like a jet, increasing the fish's lift-to-drag ratio even further and improving its flying performance much more. I guess that is much more than I ever wanted to know about how flying fish fly, but it is still very, very cool. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care, be vigilant at the next flying fish crossing you come to, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
2: There you go, and coming soon as well, we have another an amazing narration, but it's a, it's a- cast of stars for a, a new story by Gord Seller and the main narrator is J.J. Campanella. Do look out for that very, very soon. Next up is the third and final part of Jason Sanford's Sublimation Angels. Like I say, Jason is one of those writers now, it's just like he's hitting all the buttons for me and this is the third and final part of this fantastic story.
4: It is narrated by Josh Roseman. Previously on Starship Sofa Part 2 of Sublimation Angels by Jason Sanford In Part 1, we met Chika and Alna, low kids on the planet Yur. Chika's twin brother Amare had died after being sentenced to work in the decay pit. Later, Chika and Alna, Amare's widow, were sentenced there as punishment. In Part 2, Chika began a relationship with Luck, a low kid who, along with her brother Tuck, lived with Alna and Chika. While on a mining mission, Alna discovers Amare frozen in the ice. But how is that possible when, after his death, Amare was ground up and fed to the decay pit? After Chika's nemesis, Guntar, kills a low kid, Alna leads the low kids in rebellion against Yur's leader, Big Mom. But Chika fears that they will all be killed in the end. And now, the conclusion The four of us made our bub in a nook of a tunnel near enough to the decay pit that we stayed warm. But far enough back that we didn't continually smell the stinking air. We slept on top of our slush suits and cranked our pails of air and pretended we were back in our cubbyhole home. Even though Alna was still our bub mate, she rarely slept. She paced the pit at all hours, rallying the scared low kids and making sure we didn't let our guard down. Tuck followed after her, helping in any way he could as he tried in vain to win Alna's heart. So it was that Luck and I had the temporary bub to ourselves most of the time. Luck dug some dried ochre out of a waste pile and coated the tunnel walls in dabs of orange and red. We joked about what a lousy honeymoon this had been. Then Luck told me she was pregnant. We have to tell Handel, she said. Handel wasn't surprised. I figured as much, he said. What with you having trouble keeping food down? I wish you both the best. Luck thanked Handel. I asked if there was anything he could do to stop the CO2 from flowing down to us. Do, he asked. What do you mean, do? You are low, kids. You are trapped. Enjoy life while you can, because this standoff won't end well. Luck glared at him with shocked eyes. You not help, she asked. You, older than Big Mom, but looking younger than me. You help you, but not us. Handel didn't say anything. Luck hit him, and hit him again, and then stormed back to our bub. Handel shook his head sadly at me. "'Your brother would have understood,' he said. "'I stared at him, troubled by something I couldn't begin to explain. "'Did you hear Big Mom's offer?' I asked. "'Yes, you should take it. All of you should. "'You don't think the moms will try to punish us? "'And if they do, anything is better than what you face right now.' "'I started to ask why Handel didn't think he faced the same dangers we did, "'but decided not to push the issue. "'Not knowing what else to do.' I walked to the bub to comfort luck. That night I stood guard with Tuck. As the hours passed, the moms glared at us from their side of the tunnel, and we glared back. The moms looked fresh as ever, with all that damn good air and heat to warm their hearts. At one point, Guntar walked by to check on his people. He saw me and flashed that nasty face-wide smirk of his. I gave him the finger, which enraged him so much he had to be restrained to keep from charging at me. Once Guntar was gone, I asked Tuck what his sister had meant, that Handel could help himself, but not us. Tuck didn't answer, only looked at me with his usual dead eyes. I'd always taken those eyes to mean a lack of understanding, but now I knew that was simply how he kept his secrets to himself. By the time Tuck and I finished guard duty, we were so exhausted we collapsed into the bub. I snuggled up to luck, and she moaned softly from whatever dream she was having. I kissed her neck and quickly fell asleep. I woke to Tuck shaking me. He held his finger to his lips for silence and pointed down the tunnel. At first I didn't see anything. Then a giant shape appeared, a shape that could only be Handle in a slush suit. Tuck quickly helped me into my slush suit and attached a full air tank to my back. I asked him if he wanted to come, but he whispered that his place was defending the pit with Alna. I asked him to keep an eye on Luck, then hurried after Handel. I kept my glow stick shut, so my only light was the faint glow from Handel's stick, which beckoned me through the tunnels like a hauntingly peaceful ghost. We quickly entered the supply tunnel, which led to the frozen water and organics. It also led to Amare's body. Sure enough, when we reached the newly cut tunnel where Amare's body lay, Handel stopped. I waited at the tunnel entrance, watching Handel as he stood before Amare for what seemed like forever. He waited so long I began to worry about my air supply. But then he turned and walked deeper into the new tunnel, even though the tunnel merely dead-ended a little ways down. That's when Handel disappeared. I twisted my glow tube on and raced forward. Sure enough, the tunnel still ended in a sheer wall. I reached out my gloved hand and it fell through the wall before me. An illusion. Before I followed Handel through the fake wall, I checked my tick-tock gauge to see how much air I had left. Since I'd started out with a full tank, I knew I should have another hour and a half of air left. But long years of managing suits had given me an instinctive feel for air. Even though Tuck had topped off my suit before I left, the air had a slight aftertaste to it, which shouldn't have occurred until I was running low. To my shock, I had less than twenty minutes of air remaining. My legs begged to collapse. My heart screamed, but I refused to panic and fought my body into obeying. I also cursed Tuck. I trusted him like a brother. Air is a simple equation. Either you have enough, or you don't. It would take me at least an hour to walk back to the decay pit at this point, and I didn't have the air to do that. My only choice was to die right here, or keep following Handel and hope he had a backup tank. So I stepped through the imaginary wall. I no longer worried about Handel noticing me, and kept my glow tube open. For half a minute, I followed him down this new tunnel, the green glow licking into the CO2 and water ice and flickering back with frozen images of the swamps that once lined this ground. I thought about the primitive creatures that lived here, creatures as far below me as I was below an AI or an aural. I thought about luck and our child. I thought about Alna and even damn old Tuck. I refused to die here. I refused to give up. And then to my surprise, Handel disappeared yet again. He'd been standing 30 meters in front of me. I rushed forward, afraid I'd lost him in another illusion. Instead, the tunnel ended in a blackness which my glow stick couldn't dispel. I leaned over the edge and held out the glow stick. By its faint lay, I saw a massive shaft angle away to my right and left and drop to perfect blackness below. The walls of the shaft had the smooth perfection of high tech. The sides were so slick there was no way I could climb down. I assumed Handel had gone down because the roof of the shaft ended a few meters above the tunnel. Not knowing what else to do, I dropped the glow tube over the edge. It fell, forever, until its light was lost in the darkness. I now stood in perfect darkness. My suit's air reeked of coming death. I suddenly knew that Tuck had known about this shaft. He'd given me just enough air to get here, but not enough to return home. He'd wanted me to jump into the shaft after Handel. Having no other options, I stepped forward into the dark, swearing that if I made it home, I'd beat the crap out of my brother-in-law. I'd like to say I didn't scream, but Amare always said not to lie. So yes, I screamed, I yelled, and cursed until my ears rang inside my helmet. Once that was out of my system, I remembered a physics lesson Amare taught me, how Ur was similar in size to Old Earth, and how objects on Yur fell at 9.8 meters per second squared. I started counting, trying to figure out how long until the big splat. To my surprise, I counted well past 10 seconds, then 20. I quickly fell several kilometers, amazed that a shaft could be this deep. Just as I wondered if I'd ever reached the shaft's end, or if my air would run out first, I heard a faint whistling sound. I saw a faint glow below, and realized it was the glow tube I'd dropped earlier. The tube raced toward me, and I braced for impact, but instead I slowed down. Gentle as can be, I landed on the stone floor beside the glow tube. I heard a small thump beside me, and turned to see Handel laughing inside a backlit doorway. He waved for me to follow him. We walked to a small indentation in the stone wall, which sealed behind us and lit up with the brightest lights I'd ever seen. I wish you'd seen your face as you fell, Handel said as he removed his helmet. You're the first one to follow me over the edge. I cautiously removed my helmet. The sweetest air I'd ever breathed flooded into my lungs. I didn't have a choice, I said. Tuck short-changed my air. I either jumped or died. Handel laughed even more. That scoundrel. He followed me down the tunnel a few times, but never took that final leap into the shaft. Handel shook his head at his great-whatever-grandson's ingenuity at tricking me, then led me down the bright tunnel to a large open space about fifty meters wide. Inside, the lights were so powerful they actually shone white. Plants grew everywhere—corn, wheat, spinach, and many more I didn't know the name of. Their leaves were a deep, dark green, far beyond the paleness I'd always seen in our decay-pit gardens. Strange machines and technology lay everywhere. I glanced at what could only be a view screen and saw an image of myself falling through the shaft. I glanced at another screen and saw Luck yelling at, and then hitting, Tuck, as he explained where I'd gone. Another view showed the enforcers outside the decay pit. A final view showed Big Mom pacing her bub, arguing with Guntar about how to handle the Low Kid Rebellion. Do the ARLs know about this technology? Of course they do. Even though we're ten kilometers deep, I dare say they know all about this. Then why did you bury this so deep? And why haven't the Arls killed us for using tech? Handel sighed and collapsed into a cushioned chair. This room wasn't buried to hide it from the Arls. It was buried to hide it from humanity. What do you mean? You have to understand that most humans didn't agree with the decision to undertake this mission. However, the invitation from the Arles to travel into their system was too important to let humans decide. AI consensus was that we couldn't pass up this opportunity to learn about the Arles. A familiar anger welled inside me. It isn't humanity's technology the Arles don't like. It's UAI's. Handel snorted. A false distinction. Over the millennia, we AIs, which I remind you humanity originally created, have so merged with human culture and lives that it is impossible to separate the two of us. I glanced at the marvelous technology all around me. No doubt there was tech here to nourish my child with healthy food and air and stop the moms from hurting even one more low kid. Then why haven't you helped? Why have you let us suffer? Handel nodded sagely. I help in little ways, keeping the decay pit working, repairing the heat exchangers when they threatened to clog, but this lab wasn't designed to support an entire expedition, only to aid here and there. My hands shook with anger as I remembered Handel declining to help luck. You're lying. The sage-like pose Handel had been striking disappeared. Any particular reason for thinking that? Answer me this. How did Big Mom survive all this time? How did she suddenly look so young the other day, when she looked near death only last year? And I know she can still read minds. She shouldn't be able to do that. Handel shrugged. It was dictated by the ARLs. Two A.I.s could travel into this system with the humans, but we had to use human bodies. We could also bring whatever tech was needed to keep Big Mom and I alive until the planet's orbit carried us back out, but nothing more. Tech support for the expedition was incidental. I wanted to smack Handel's perfect young body for all he and Big Mom had done. Amare was right. The A.I.s had manipulated us as much as the Arles. Everyone manipulated everyone. The Arles sent the planet to entice humans into their space. The Big Moms pretended they were sharing the suffering, but they really weren't. Damn them all! I kicked a nearby machine. Handel's face blanched, even though the machine hummed without complaint. So Big Mom comes down here? No. No. She and I were given separate duties and abilities to keep us from trying to get rid of the other. She doesn't know how to get here. When I heal her body, I take the tech to her. But she knows this planet isn't going to take us out of aural space. Yes. So she punishes people for merely speaking the truth. What were you two going to do? Keep this insane world running forever by tricking people into believing they'd be reborn? I know you're angry, but you've only lost something you've never known. I gave up abilities beyond your understanding, and to know it was for nothing. The old me would have hit Handel, but I knew he was attempting to explain, in his own arrogant way. I was tempted to keep talking to Handel, to learn the answers to puzzles and questions which had haunted my brother until his death. But now that I knew how much these A.I.s had manipulated everyone, I no longer cared for any answers Handel could give. But to my surprise, Handel now begged for answers. He grabbed my right arm in a grip so powerful I thought my bones would break. Tell me the truth, he said. Why did they choose Amare? I stared in shock at him. You don't know? Handel glared into me, and I suddenly felt that eerie tickling in my scalp as he ran through my memories. But to my surprise, he couldn't learn the truth. You're too angry to read, he said. He slammed me in front of a transparent machine, where he once again asked why the Arles chose Amare. I told him I didn't know. Handel stared at the machine's colorful wash of lines and words. He must not have liked what he saw, because he released my arm and collapsed to the floor. I thought you'd know, he said, that maybe Amare told you something. He must have known what the Arles were doing. I mean, they chose him. I remembered what Luck had told me once, how the Arles were playing a joke on the Big Moms, and realized my wife was wiser than anyone I knew. So, the Arles played you like the Big Moms played us, I said. Now what are you going to do? Handel shrugged. I don't know. There's a massive amount of energy inside Amare's body, but this primitive tech can't make an accurate reading. I suspect the energy in his body is similar to readings the Arles give off. I wanted to laugh that Handel considered this amazing technology primitive, but I didn't have time for this nonsense. Not when everyone I cared about was waiting for either the moms or the bad air to kill them. I glanced around Handel's lair. Is there anything here to help the low kids? Handel no longer cared. I can give you a spare spacesuit, so you'll be protected like the moms, but my other tech is too precious to risk with you. I ignored the insult. Give me what you can. I then noticed a map on one of the view screens. The map looked strangely familiar, even though it was far more detailed than anything I'd ever seen. Is that a map of the cave? Yes. I'll also need a copy of that. Whatever technology slowed my fall down the shaft also launched me back up. The new suit I wore contained powerful spotlights, and I watched in amazement as my body flew through the air toward a tiny tunnel I couldn't even see. I was afraid my occasional tumble would cause me to miss the target, but the tech slowed me down, so I landed on the lip of the tunnel as if I'd jumped there from half a meter away. I quickly ran to the decay pit, where the low kids screamed in fear at my bright-lit suit. Alna stepped toward me, holding her spar, ready to strike. I twisted my helmet off and laughed as she and the others hugged me with excitement. After explaining what I had learned, and after punching Tuck in the face, an action luck quickly added to tenfold, I explained my plan. With the printed map Handel had given me, I showed the low kids the hidden escape tunnels which led to the surface. We could use those to evacuate, then re-enter the cave through the surface airlocks. From there, we could hook up with other low kid groups and have safety in numbers. And with our knowledge of Handel's hidden tech, we might even convince the middle workers and a few moms to join our fight. Risky. Alna said. Once we go back to the cave, word will spread. Moms will think quick to find the new tunnels. I nodded. But Big Mom is up to something. She has been manipulating things for so long, she won't let us simply surrender. Since she knows about Handel and his tech, maybe she's worried he'll end up helping us. I think that's why she offered to let us surrender. If she believes Handel is helping us, she'll send the moms against us sooner rather than later. Alna and the other low kids agreed with my view, and everyone voted to risk the hidden tunnels. Since we only have a few slush suits, I said, it'll take a number of trips to get everyone to safety. We'll send guards with each trip. Using this spacesuit will give us an edge. Alna looked doubtful. You fight in suit? You? No. I can't fight worth a damn, I said as other low kids laughed in agreement. But if you were in the suit... The low kids cheered. There had never been a low kid permitted to wear an actual space suit. The low kids hoisted Alna and paraded her around the decay pit until she told them to put her down so we could get to work. As I stripped off the suit and handed it to Alna, she hugged me close. You a true low kid now, she said. True and good. Figuring the first trip would be the safest, because we'd take the moms by surprise, I insisted luck be among the group. As she donned her slush suit, I told her everything I'd seen in Handel's hidden lair. I want to see this hole, she said. Be fun, to fall without hurt. See plants of real green. I hugged her, and promised as soon as this was over, I'd take her to Handel's lair, just the two of us. Yes, she said, laughing. Just us two. My brother, he can't go tuck was dressing in his suit beside us and he hung his head at his sister's comment i smiled and slapped him on the back let me push you off that shaft once and we'll call it even i said tuck smiled and we all laughed and then alna stepped up in her bright-lit suit and led us to safety the hidden tunnel breached the surface near the observatory as stealthily as we could we hiked back to one of the cave's side airlocks there were ten of us in the group with myself, Alna, and Tuck as the guards, each carrying a long cudgel. We quickly cycled through the airlock and sneaked through the cave until we reached the communal bub of another low-kid group, where quiet whispers and hugs greeted us. Alna, Tuck, and I then refreshed our air and set off for the airlock and the hidden escape tunnel. We managed two more trips that day, ferrying low-kids to safety. Even though we tried to be careful, it was impossible not to leave tracks in the mirror ash. Each time we left the escape tunnel, I tensed, prepared to battle any waiting moms. Then came the fourth trip. Tuck stepped out of the tunnel first, waving for us when he didn't see any moms. Alna and I quickly followed, shepherding our nervous charges out. As always, the aurels danced into the heavens and the crab nebula grabbed its way across the sky. That's when I saw sublimation angels smoking out of new gaps in the mirror ash. I'd never seen angels emerging naturally, and pointed them out to Alna just as the ash exploded and a squad of enforcers climbed out of a camouflaged hole, cleavers slashing at our slush suits. Alna jumped between the low kids and the attacking moms. One of the moms stabbed her with a cleaver, only to stare in shock as the cleaver bounced off Alna's suit. Alna flicked on her suit's light, blinding the mom, then smashed the enforcer with her cudgel. Tuck and I stood beside her, using her suit as a shield while we pushed and smashed the moms, giving the other low kids time to escape back to the tunnel. Once the other low kids were safe, Tuck and I grabbed Alna and tried to drag her to the tunnel. Alna, however, refused to go. She waited for Tuck and me to escape while she protected us. Through our combined touch, I heard Tuck's soft voice arguing with her. I glanced at Tuck, about to touch his shoulder and tell him to help me force Alna into the tunnel, when suddenly he let go of Alna and screamed a silent scream. Alna and I fell back onto the ash as Tuck stood there with a long cleaver growing from his chest. Blood spewed across the mirror ash, and a sublimation angel rose from his suit to greet the sky. Alna shouted something I couldn't hear and reached for Tuck. I jumped up, looking for his attacker, and saw Guntar standing behind him. I charged and knocked him back with my cudgel. As he fell, I smashed him over and over until two other enforcers tackled me. Other moms piled onto Alna, who fought to reach Tuck. When Guntar picked himself up, his wide, wide face slid out the cruelest smirk I'd ever seen. The moms held Alna and me down, and I knew we were about to die. I expected Guntar to gloat, to tell me how much he'd hated Amare and me, and how we didn't deserve rebirth. But to my surprise, he merely walked over to Alna, and twisted her helmet off in an explosion of suddenly frozen air. I've thought for many years on Alna's death, on why the sudden decompression didn't kill her, Those with a touch of science have said that maybe enough of the planet's atmosphere had sublimated where we stood that Alna didn't immediately die. Others say that maybe Handel's suit, or some other remnant of his AI tech, briefly protected her. I don't agree. As the air and Alna's suit disappeared in a rush of snow, she sat there for a moment with a puzzled look on her face. Then she stood up, shoving aside the surprised moms who held her with one powerful sweep of her arm. As the aurels spun rainbow colors above us and our images stared back from the mirrored surface, Alna looked at me and smiled. She said, I feel Amare. And the strange thing was that in the near vacuum, we all heard her words, heard as clear as a bell. She then leaned over Tuck's body. I hope some small part of him existed to see Alna place a single kiss on his frozen face mask before she sat down in the mirror ash and frozen oxygen beside him. She made a snowball which she threw at Guntar's face mask. She nodded her head as if someone whispered a deep, true secret in her ear that made another snowball and threw it at me. Reborn, she said, as she brushed the mirror ash off her suit. Reborn, the whole damn thing. And she died, looking as peaceful as if she'd merely gone to sleep. Instead of killing me, Guntar dragged me to the main airlock where he removed my suit and gagged and tied me, He warned his enforcers not to say a word about what had happened. But our cave is a little world, where gossip travels faster than heat. Maybe one of the low kids in the escape tunnel saw what happened to Alna. Maybe one of the enforcers couldn't keep quiet. Either way, by the time we left the airlock, crowds lined the spiral pathways. Low kids screamed and threw things at the enforcers and chanted Alna's name, while the middle kids and moms whispered and pointed at me in shock. "'Guntar and his enforcers looked unnerved "'and waved their cleavers in futile attempts "'to disperse the crowds. "'When we reached Big Mom's bub, "'Guntar encircled the dwelling with his enforcers. "'Crowds pushed against the suited moms, "'and for one brief moment I saw Luck "'as she smashed a cudgel against a helmeted figure. "'Luck waved at me before she and the rest of the crowd "'ran away from the enforcers' flailing cleavers. "'I didn't need to be a mare "'to know this was well on its way to ugly, "'but before I could see more,' Guntar dragged me inside the bub and sealed the door. I lay stiff and unmoving as he told Big Mom what happened on the surface. Big Mom walked to a window and stared at the crowds surrounding the bub. Something smashed against the unbreakable glass before her, causing Big Mom to curse. Big Mom walked over to me. I need you to go outside and tell people nothing happened. Guntar murdered my friends, I said. That's what happened. "'Totally justified. Alna led the low kids to revolt. The other one dared raise a weapon to us. I'll ask one more time. Will you tell them nothing happened?' I shook my head. I expected Guntar to pull his cleaver and threaten me, but instead Big Mom merely smiled. I felt a familiar tickling in my scalp and knew she was trying to stick some command up there to make me do her bidding.' Even though I've always been afraid of almost everything, and even though I've never been a hero like Amare or Alna or Tuck, I refused to give in to Big Mom. I wouldn't go out and lie merely so my child could one day be manipulated by this damn AI. As Big Mom wormed her way into my head, I heard Alna speak her final words about reborning the planet. I remembered Amare saying something similar shortly before he died. I wondered if that was the key, if that was what my brother had meant all along. Handle. "'I whispered. "'What?' Big Mom asked, "'leaning over me as the tickling stopped. "'It was Handel. "'He helped Alna. "'He has tech.' "'Big Mom looked suspicious. "'Handel is sworn not to interfere in cave affairs "'unless I ask. "'Where do you think the suit Alna wore came from?' "'Big Mom glanced at Guntar, who nodded. "'I know how to reach his secret lab,' I said. "'You won't have to rely on him to keep you young. "'You can take all the tech you need.' Big Mom stared at me, trying to decide if I was lying as she tickled her way into my head again. Desperate to keep her from the truth, I remembered how Handel hadn't been able to read my mind when I was angry, so I thought of luck, and our soon-to-be child, and how he or she would one day beg for heat and air. I thought of Handel, and the life-saving tech he hid below our feet. I thought of my brother, and how the Arles had picked him merely to die. Anger burned me, and Big Mom staggered for a moment before the tickling stopped. She looked at me trying to decide what to do. She then motioned for Guntar to cut my bonds. As I stood up, I prayed to the Arles my brother knew what he was doing when he set all this in motion. I also prayed that a nobody like me, who had been manipulated by others all his life, could finally twist things to his own advantage. By the time I walked out of the bub with Guntar and Big Mom, the enforcers had beaten back the crowds. I saw Luck and several low kids, all with bloody faces, trying to break through the moms with their cudgels, but the moms were too tough. I yelled at Luck to pull back, but Guntar slapped my face silent. When I glanced back up, Luck and the other low kids were gone. Guntar led us to a supply room where all of us, including Big Mom, donned fresh spacesuits. We then marched with twenty enforcers to the decay pit tunnel. The barricades lay where we'd built them, but a path had been shoved through them. I assumed when the moms had pulled back to stop the riot, the remaining low kids had fled. As we passed the decay pit, Guntar patted me on the shoulder and, mimicking Alna's voice, said he felt Amare. Not yet you haven't, I thought. But you will. None of these moms had ever hiked so far through the ice tunnels, and they flinched and jumped as our glow tubes lit the passing shapes in the ice. I wondered about the ancient swamps which had once grown on this world. Wondered if Amare was right, and the Orals had sent the world out of its orbit merely for humanity's use, or if there were other reasons we couldn't suspect. But in the end, it didn't matter what others did to you. It only mattered what you did for yourself. Is this the entrance to Handel's hideaway? Big Mom asked, her right glove gripping my suit's shoulder as we entered the tunnel containing Amare's body. I muttered yes, praying Handel was watching us on his tech. Guntar walked a dozen meters in front of us with two of his scouts, and when he reached Amare's glowing body, he stopped and slammed his gloved hand into the ice wall. I laughed. I knew Guntar was screaming, screaming outrage in that sealed suit of his, screaming that the person he'd hated more than any other had returned. I hoped Handel remembered how much Guntar hated Amare. If he remembered that, he'd know what was coming next. I also hoped the son-of-a-bitch AI manipulator remembered all the aural energy coursing through Amare's frozen veins. When Big Mom and I reached Guntar, his two scouts held him from attacking the ice wall. Big Mom stared at Amare for a moment, then grabbed my face mask and slammed me against the ice with a strength which shocked me. What is this? she asked. What have you done? It's not me, I stammered, hoping I seemed as afraid as I felt. It's Handel. He recreated Amare's body. Said he'd reborn Amare. Said Amare would lead the low kids against you. Big Mom pushed me away in disgust. She reached out for Guntar, no doubt to tell him to cut my brother's body from the ice. But before she could touch Guntar's spacesuit, the back of her suit exploded blood and quick-frozen air. She fell as I saw Handel running toward us, his suit lighting up the tunnel, and a strange rod in his hand shooting bolts of energy. Get away from him! Handel screamed, the strange weapon in his hand glowing hot as another mom's suit ripped to pieces. I didn't ask how Handel broadcast those words to my suit, and I didn't ask who Handel meant to get away from. It was obvious he wanted to stop the moms from cutting Amare from the ice. Guntar waved for his men to form a battle line. As they did, I shoved the mom who held my suit and ran for Handel. The rod in his hand pointed at me for a moment before firing at a mom behind me. Damn you, Handel broadcast into my suit as I ran past him, but I didn't care, and I didn't stop until I was down the tunnel and passing through the imaginary wall. I kept running until I had reached the drop-off leading to Handel's lab. I paused, afraid to jump because I didn't know if Handel had left on whatever tech slowed the fall at the bottom of the shaft. Glancing back, I saw the imaginary wall only worked one way. I watched Handel shooting the moms over and over with his weapon. Guntar appeared unhurt, but the other moms spun and fell as their suits vented blood and air and colorful snowstorms illuminated by Handel's spotlights. As Guntar realized he had mere moments before Handel shot him, he lifted his cleaver and slammed it into the ice above Amare's body. The green foxfire coating Amare's body electrified the cleaver and Guntar, who flailed and jumped like a low kid fed through the grinder. Handel turned to run toward me, but the foxfire grabbed his body as it raced down the tunnel, the ice spurting to steam and shoving its way into a massive shockwave, with only me blocking its escape." I no longer cared if Handel left the shafts tack on, I flung myself into darkness, and watched as the foxfire pushed up and up until I saw open sky above and the rainbow tracers of Arl circling and circling, almost as if they were writing words of encouragement for my eyes alone to read. Don't ask for explanations. I have none. As I'd hoped— the shaft again slowed my fall. As I landed, a blast of steam and debris pelted my suit, and I barely made it into the safety of the lab before a mountain of frozen air smashed into the doorway. It took me two days to learn how to control enough of Handel's tech to clear the shaft, and another three days to return to the sky above. During that time, I stared at the viewscreens, wondering what it meant where before only blackness could be seen in the shaft. I now saw a tiny dot of sky which, strangely, appeared to be blue. Once I could control one of Handel's strange flying machines, I loaded up as much of Handel's tech as I could manage and flew up the shaft. I wore a new spacesuit and was armed with one of Handel's projectile rods. When I cleared the crater the Foxfire had created, I circled above, shocked by what I saw. The mirror ash was gone. In its place, the oxygen and nitrogen and all the other frozen gases sublimated into the sky. The rising clouds tinted a faint blue when backlit by the Mother Star's light. I found no evidence of Big Mom, Handel, Guntar, and the other enforcers who'd been in the tunnel. Unable to see more than a few dozen meters, due to the outventing gas clouds, the flyer's tech guided me to the cave. When I was two kilometers away, the skies cleared and mirror ash returned. I looked around. The Arles had left a circle of frozen air around the cave, hopefully enough to survive on until the planet's atmosphere stabilized. The wall of clouds circling our little frozen world reminded me of Handel's shaft and how you couldn't see much of anything when you looked up from inside that deep, deep hole. I landed beside the main airlock. As I cranked through the system, weapon-ready, I imagined myself storming the caves and freeing my people. Instead, I stepped inside to the cheers of a hundred people, all led by a laughing luck, who stood there in an insulated jumpsuit. "'Took you forever,' she said before kissing my helmet. After I removed my suit, Luck led me to Big Mom's Bub, where a green glowing image of Amare floated. It answers questions, Luck said. Well, some. It's how we knew you came back. I stared at the blank face of my brother. The green image looked like the holographs I'd seen spinning in Handel's lab. I wondered if anything of my brother existed before me, or if the Arles had crafted tech in his image to make us feel comfortable about the changes this planet was undergoing. What happens now? I asked Amare. Amare turned its head slightly and stared at me with eyes glowing foxfire through blanket-empty pupils. This planet is reborn, and will soon orbit its star again. You live here, also reborn. No manipulating AIs can reach you now. And what about the Orals? They manipulated us even more than the Big Moms. Amare didn't answer, but its lips twitched into a cruel smirk. See, Lux said, it's not the real Amare. Your brother never cruel. "'I know,' I said. "'I started to turn away, "'but a question I'd wondered about "'since my brother's death popped into my head. "'Is this why you picked my brother?' "'I asked the glowing tech. "'Is this all you wanted, to use him up until he died?' "'For a moment, the glowing Amare glared at me "'in what could only be described as irritation. "'We didn't choose Amare.' "'What do you mean? "'I was there. "'I saw you.' "'We didn't choose Amare. "'We chose you.' And you have done well. I screamed and tried to hit Amare, all the anger I'd felt when others manipulated me slamming through my body. Luck and several low kids dragged me away as I yelled not to trust the Arls. They're no better than the big moms. Remember that. They're just the same. Luck and I snuggled in our little bub, feeling warm in our insulated jumpsuits and blankets. Over the last six months, your surface temperature had risen by 50 degrees C. Our astronomers, in conversations with the aural projected Amare, said the planet would likely have a breathable atmosphere within 20 years. Things would still be extremely cold, but we wouldn't have to survive off frozen air anymore. With Big Mom and Handel no longer manipulating us, and with there being no need to fear the use of technology, we'd already improved the lot of the entire cave. The Shiwanella bacteria now funneled their energy into lines feeding electrified heaters around the cave. While the low kids still lugged most of our air supply, the middle kids and moms were beginning to join in. Now that everyone realized there was no rebirth awaiting them, and that our expedition would stand or fall on its own efforts, people were more willing to do the hard, dangerous work of keeping us all alive. There were still problems, still fights and anger over the way things had been and the way they'd go in the future, but now that we'd seen the Arls power and that we had to deal with them without the help of the rest of humanity and our AIs, people saw no alternative but to come together. I don't know what will happen. It's obvious the Arles wanted to trap us here. It's also obvious they're using this planet to change us. As Amare said, it takes a long time to change a culture. Humanity relied so much on tech and AIs that when we first came to this world, we wouldn't have survived without Big Mom and Handel watching over us. But we've changed over the centuries, and no longer need them. Now that they're gone, who knows what will become? Not that this makes the Arls any better for what they've done. Luck moaned and rolled on her side. I placed my hand on her belly and felt our child kicking, felt the tiny punches of infant outrage against everything holding him or her back from our enticing world. I smiled and kissed luck on her cheek. Even though the air canister's TikTok clock hadn't chimed, I reached up and released a burst of fresh air.
2: There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Jason Sanford. And hopefully we'll get some more work by Jason. And hopefully if you want more serials, please do drop us a line and let me know. So, as you can see, the main artwork for the story, I so wanted to get Ben on, you know, because Ben's work, if you go over to his site, I'll put a link onto his site, it is just staggering what, you know, this man can achieve with, with a computer. You know, I was going to say with a pen and paper, but nowadays it's all computer. But I wanted to get him on and just have a, you know, a chat like say this guy's been working for Weta, Lord of the Rings, all that kind of stuff. You know, he's one of the big kind of hitters out there in the art world, so this is a little interview I did with Ben. So on the line, we have Ben Wooten, who has done that amazing picture for that James Morrow story. Ben, nice of you to come on board.
7: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Tony. I'm a real privilege. Oh, thank you so
2: much. And you're actually down New Zealand where, where actually Grant lives as well. Are you, do you know each other? You know, Grant Stone, who works on Starships Seven, and kind of, who actually went and picked up the Hugo Award for with it, he's oh, kicking down that I area. wish I'd
7: put two and two together sooner. I'm, I... I will make an effort to to catch up and meet him. It would be crazy not to, and it would be brilliant to meet him. Um, yeah, I, I didn't even put two and two together about WorldCon. That's something um, I sh- I should have gone to myself. Um, so you you a, missed a,
2: you missed WorldCon as well. Ooh. Well, actually, yeah. you were a lot nearer than me. I, mean, I just could not afford that travel kind of distance there. <laughs> you know I, mean?
7: I don't think it'll ever be as close to <laughs> yes. to me for for a long time again. And um. A friend of mine's just written her first book and and just had that picked up and she went over there and I just I just never never put two and two together that I should have gone I, I don't know
2: never mind I, I was going I was just going to say they'll come again but <laughs> 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 so Ben I've got you on just to talk about that bit of artwork you know you got in touch with us. And just said Tony, do you know what I mean? Is, is, you know, do, do you need any artwork? And then you dropped a link to your website. And honestly, Ben, when I went to your website, my heart, you know, it was like racing because I was looking at your work, thinking, man, this guy's a genius. You know what I mean? And I was just thinking, wow, he wants to kind of come on the starships over. So I sent the story over, and look what we've got in return. Honestly, Ben, thank you so much.
7: Oh, this one was a pleasure. I, I haven't heard the story read yet, but you sent me the text file, and this is a really intriguing little story, and I, I really like the the juxtaposition of characters in here with the yetis and the Dalai Lama and the politics associated with the Dalai Lama in Tibet, and it's a quirky little story, and and a lot of imagery came to mind. I've tried to keep it interesting, but not give anything away that's actually in the story, because I think there's a lot of really great little character moments, and... um. Yeah, what a brilliant, what a brilliant story! It's a real privilege to to be working on this one. Actually,
2: how do you how do you approach uh, to draw a picture? You know, especially for the the wee arc and just sent you over a story. Do you read the story and then almost immediately an, an image comes to your mind, or sometimes you have to kind of pull them out and think, oh, God, I don't know where I'm going to get an image for for this story.
7: Sometimes they come straight out, and and then other times I'll read it maybe again, and I'll leave it percolating. A lot of my drawings done inside my head before I actually ever put pencil to paper. Um, right, you know, so you can, even, pop-
2: you can even visualize them so like, clear as well? or what?
7: Just the ideas begin to percolate, and you begin to think of, oh, that would be an interesting camera angle, or that's the pivotal moment. Like the last cover I did for you. Um, oh, yes, that was, was the to have and to hold, you know, that was really interesting. And I, for me, there was a lot of imagery in that. You could have gone different ways. And I thought, no, the pivotal moment was the car crash. That was the point where his life changed forever. Um, and it left the story, you know, the, the cover very ambiguous. But this one here was a little bit harder. And I thought, I think this is more about the characters and the feel of the piece rather than specific moments in it. So, um, I so this you- is
2: i tell you what I, I like about that, you know, the, the other one you did, the, the car one for the, uh, to have and to hold, was there was so much in that picture you could have, you know, there were so many questions, why? Do you know what I mean? That was the question, why? Yeah. It was always on your lips, why? Why There was a little ball there, why? You know, what? That was just, it kept you thinking and thinking, wanting to get to the, the artwork.
7: Yeah, you yeah. know, was it, did she, has a child been hurt? Is it, you know? And I think, because the rest of the story, that, that was, that was a, I think it could have been quite grim and quite bleak, although that's not a happy picture anyway. But the story's quite intense, and I think it was best unfolded as a story than trying to show that one visually. Whereas I think this one, you know, the first thing you you get to in the story, and I don't think it's a spoiler at all, is is you know um, you're seeing a Yeti biting the top of someone's <laughs> head, and you go, "What the ha- What was that about? Why is the Dalai Lama there?" And and there's a lot of funny stuff, and I think it asks questions in a different way. So that was really. Good fun um, to think about.
2: Ben, where I mean, just tell the listeners then where do you come from? Then have have you been doing art all your time? Are you a professional artist? Is this just something you do in your spare time?
7: I'm I'm a professional artist. I've I've been in um, doing freelance illustration work from home for games companies for about five years now. Um, Before that, I worked at Weta Workshop um, on the design team there um, on sort of some minor films Lord of the Rings <laughs> <laughs> Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe it sounds mental eh? it's like um, my childhood was spent playing role playing games and reading fantasy books and it used to drive my mum crazy you know why are you always wasting your time with that why can't you draw something nice and now the irony is here I am not drawing something nice and someone's paying me for it it's so bizarre so I've, I've had a charmed life it's been amazing to have experienced working on those films to work with the people I've worked with and then to actually um, be able to sit at home and work with amazing people around the world doing... doing. Um, so this is this of, is
2: your day job. You get up in the morning and you walk over to your little kind of art studio <laughs> and that's it. You're just painting these pictures all day. What?
7: <laughs> wow. Look, yeah, it's, it is... You know, I grumble about it sometimes, and I think anyone would. and Anything becomes work at some point. But no, I'm, I'm, really, really lucky to be to have the opportunity to do this. Um, yeah, it's 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 cool.
2: What is it with New Zealand, though? It just seems to like is it all there. You know, it it seems like a, a disproportionate lot of like artists are in New Zealand, turning out some amazing work.
7: Yeah, I don't know. I think um. I think we've been really lucky to have some high-profile projects that have really pushed people into the for- into the limelight. And I don't think that per head of population we're any more gifted than anyone else. I'm actually from England, so I guess that's one for one for as <laughs> Well, yeah. So um, no, I don't know. I think I think we're just lucky that it seems like a lot of people because everyone knows everyone because it's so small. Maybe I don't know. Like um, one of the guys that I've worked with on. Both on film and doing illustration work, I grew up with, you know, um, two of them actually. It's a, from a small town of twelve thousand people, and there's three of us working on films in the same place. It's quite, but it's a bit like that, you know. It's just, all of New Zealand is like a small town, I guess, in some ways. <laughs> I'm not selling it. I'm not selling it light, actually. I'm not trying to be, you know, too flippant about it. We have some big cities. It's not all corrugated iron and fencing wire but, but is um,
2: is like wet is that still up and running is that still going and still a production company for other films is that still there
7: yeah they they i think Weta Digi- digital is huge now um they do you know the latest films are you know avatar they're working on Tintin. They're, you know um i think with the internet they can uh work around the world the same as i do from Wellington, um, where to workshop is is uh, gearing up to to work on the next big film here. So yeah, it's all still ticking along. It's all still, um, you know, with with Peter Jackson still being based in Wellington.
2: Right. Oh, I, de- still- I didn't. I didn't know that. So he's still down there as well, is he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what else you, you mentioned as well. You mentioned that you were in like – there's a new HarperCollins book coming out, White Clouds Worlds. Tell us a little bit about that. What's that about?
7: Well, White, white Cloud Worlds, the name White Cloud is actually – um is the um, native or the Maori name for New Zealand, um, and it means land of the long white cloud. So White Cloud Worlds is um, a collection of New Zealand artists, New Zealand fantasy and sci-fi artists – um it 's it 's been a project that 's been spearheaded by a good friend of mine uh paul tobin who i 've worked with on projects and um, is another designer and illustrator and he 's he 's got the work of twenty seven artists from New zealand um in this collaborative book and it 's to celebrate art outside of new zealand film because we're we 're obviously well known now for artwork of fantasy that 's been done in the film industry and associated with the film industry. But this is, this is a showcase of, of what people are doing in their own time. Um, and the depth and breadth of talent that's in New Zealand. Um, it's a stunning piece of work. Well, I've,
2: um, I've seen some of the pictures you've sent over, and they just look amazing. You know, I think this is what with art, you know, and especially like the visual, it hits you. This is what makes me and what made me, I think, get into science fiction. Do you know what I mean? Just the excitement of seeing some of these pictures—they are stunning.
7: There is some amazing stuff. I'm, I'm, I haven't seen a lot of the pieces that were in here until the you know, um, the book has been put together because it's people's personal work by and large. So it's 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 really amazing to see. Um,
2: are all are, sorry, I was to ask. Are all the artists like high high level or high pros, or are some are, are there some amateurs in there as well?
7: There's some amateurs in there. There's some some you know as of yet unpublished artists. There's obviously a lot from the New Zealand film industry, um, but then there's some some dark horses like um, a, another friend of mine. Ben Stenbeck, who now works for Mike McNola, doing the Hellboy comics, um, and there's a, so there's a few things like that coming from left field. There's some really beautiful sculptors. Um, yeah, there's there's Ben's um, comic work. Um, it's a it's a very eclectic book. It's a broad range. I think there's something in there for everyone. Um, and for Paul to have put this together pitched it to HarperCollins and got this book off the ground, I think. Um, it's a testament to the quality of the book that they, they went with this. Um, at the moment, it's, the physical release is only in Australasia branch of HarperCollins, but it can be ordered over the internet, and I'll give you the links.
2: Yes, oh, yes, um, please, yes.
7: So if people are interested outside of our immediate world down here, then it is possible for them to, to buy. Um, it comes out on the 1st of November.
2: Ben, did you have to like do some writing for it, just describe where your image was coming from, or is it just basically, it's just the pictures in the book?
7: Um, everyone's done a write-up um, about themselves or about their work. Some people are pitching their work because it's an ongoing idea they've got as a project. Other people are just talking about themselves, how they got into the industry, um, what art means to them. So this, and everyone's written their own piece which is quite unusual for a book like this usually it's, it's overwritten by one person and then the artwork's provided by various artists but this all of the artists have have contributed their own work um, they've done their own little self-portrait and we've got people like um, Guillermo del Toro has done a forward Richard Taylor's done an introduction uh, John Howe and Alan Lee have written um, an afterward for it so it's collected quite a bit of interest from some some big hitters so we're pretty excited it's yeah it's 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 a very exciting project
2: oh well fingers crossed I hopefully you know he might he might get over to these fair isles as well
7: i would love to i would love to um bring the book over myself <laughs> great to <laughs> yeah. great to have a visit
2: he has a little political question for you now this Ben, is just for art on books not in the kind of the digital world and films Do you sometimes think because this this question was asked to us a couple of days ago and, it, and it, I was thinking I don't I don't really know what the the answer is is art on books sometimes overlooked
7: you mean on the covers on the
2: covers you know because it, I tell you what I, th- I think you know it, For me, you you buy a book sometimes on the cover. You know, you think, wow, that's a great cover. Then you read the words, and then everyone starts talking about the book itself and the artworks getting left behind. And that sometimes, I think for me, is frustrating because, like you say, you put all this time and effort in, and then, to me, it feels like sometimes you just get left behind. Is that the case or not?
7: I think it's an interesting one because I think if you're talking about art, you know, sort of driven books like graphic novels, and obviously the art's an integral part. But when a cover for a book, I think, as when you said it draws your eye to it and makes you pick up the book, then I think it did do its job. Because that's really what it's there to do. And, you know, I've talked to a friend of mine, Mary, who's just, you know, as I said, just, just published her first book, and it's, it's a tome. It's, you know, 350 pages, something. It's quite big. And then I, and I know that um, her husband did the cover for it. And it's a beautiful piece of artwork. And I know Frank did a lot of work on that. But he didn't do as much work as writing a whole book. So I think if the cover grabs your eye, makes you want to read that book, and doesn't feel in Congress, then I think it's really done its job. Um, so that's an interesting, yeah. That's
2: a nice. That's a nice answer. That because you know I was on the, the kind of side of well you know you, you look at the art look at the art you know what I mean but yes in a way you know the writers do spend you know oodles of time but I think you still should get you know a bit of recognition or a lot more sometimes you know than the arc us just you know it's flipped over to the to the table and okay. you start reading.
7: I know it's it's hard, isn't it? It's um but then there's awards for it. You know you do you there are you know. You can you can win Hugo's for artwork and and you know various other art awards and then there's a whole genre of, of you know publication which is just purely about the artwork. So I think it's um I think it's it's two sides of the same coin. But I, I don't think you can get angry if someone's talking more about the book than they are about your cover. <laughs> I try not to, anyway. You're just nice, Ben. I don't want to nice, be a, ben, just... be a <laughs> hypocrite now that I've said that. Eh? oh, doesn't he sound so nice? I said nothing about my cover. You no, know, so um, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Ben, honestly, it's been lovely having you on and getting like a little insight into the art world as well. Thank you so much.
7: It's it's been my pleasure, and as I say, it's doing these covers for Starship is, um this was my poor attempt to. To um, rather than donations, I I you know this this was um Ooh, that's hopefully some <laughs> some way of giving back to what you've done because I listen to a lot of podcasts while I'm drawing. It helps my artwork to have my other part of my brain engaged listening to things, and um, Starship Safe is a mainstay so. It's, it's really it's really lovely to be able to give a little bit back.
2: Oh, Ben, honestly, thank you. So Listen, for you will get more, more stories <laughs> sent your way than you know what to do with, honestly. Thank you so much.
7: My pleasure. Lovely. Thank you, Tony. Take good care. Cheers.
2: There you go. Ben, honestly, thank you so much for doing that artwork, you know, Yes, and you know that you'll get some more work as well. (laughs) There's no fear of that. If you want to, I'll put a link on to the White Clouds world. You can go over there and have a look. I've also put the image on the front of the website as well, so you can go and have a look at the book that Ben was talking about. And there's also some links for where you can actually buy it as well. So if you want to do, pop over there. Go and treat yourself to that book, because honestly, there is some stunning work there. You know, these are some of the best artists out there in New Zealand and, some, to be quite honest, some of the best artists out there in the world working the day, you know, so it's an amazing book this. Ben also mentioned that when we were talking after the, the interview that he mentioned it was actually, there's a tour as well going around New Zealand, you know, so if anyone's down there in the New Zealand area, do check out, you know, go over to the White Clouds World's blog and do check out where this book tour is, is going about. And apparently there's a limited edition of the book and slipcover. And it's all signed as well by the artist. So please, if you want that copy, do do pop over there and have a look. Like, see I've had a look at it. And some of the images are just amazing. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, this is what excites me about, you know, science fiction and fantasy and everything like that. It's, it's these images. You know, these are the images that kind of grab you. And that's why I wanted to ask Ben, do you know, how does he feel? And he was lovely with these questions. Do you know what I mean? Because... Just an honest guy, you know. Well, if if me job, if it does me job, you know, if I can get you to buy that book, and I was like, wow, you know what I mean. So Ben, honestly, thank you so much. Next up, we have a little promo for an audio book, Enemy Lines.
8: The stars have secrets. Some say these secrets have fallen from the skies. The government says it's not true, but in the 40s, they created an organization to track down flyers to learn their technology and bring one back. The threat of peace leads Black Ridge Defense to investigate rumors of a secret organization named Division 10. Typhon, system-wide, has pushed ahead of its rivals to be the first in orbit and the first to mine the asteroid belt. But when they learn of Blackridge's investigation, they form an alliance to take control of Division 10, and they're going to take down a president to do it. As their plans come to a head, something emerges from a burning building in New York City, something that could threaten Typhon and Blackridge victory. Their soldiers are on the way, and so are the black helicopters of Division 10. But there's another player in this game, and far higher stakes than control of a government or new technology. The Flyers are back. Enemy Lines, a novel written and performed by John Miro. For more information, visit EnemyLinesNovel.com. Enemy
2: And there you go, 160, sure, put to bed. I love the way I just backwards speak. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed it, like I say. I'm sure you know this is, you know, one of the reasons why Starship Sova won that Hugo Award. Do you know, I cannot see another place out there putting this kind of quality and that amount of kind of quality work out there week in, week out for you, you know what I mean? I'm just chuffed a bit the way things are going at the minute. Finally, if you'd honestly, if you do want a copy of that 89, you know, the, the book with all the signatures, please just either drop us an email or go over there and book it. The six say there's only eight copies left. They're going to go. If you want one for Christmas, treat yourselves for Christmas or just come over to the site and get yourself, you know, the basic copy. You know, the three ninety nine dollars EPUB version, if you want. It all goes into kind of making this show what it is. Do you know, there's loads of formats. We've worked in hard on it, please support and get yourself a copy of that. Don't forget copy of White Cloud Worlds as well. I just want to thank everyone that's made this show so special. Honestly, brilliant, you know, week in, week out, like I say. Thank you so much everyone. Just like I say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this
3: terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity and can they
7: escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of... ...Starshing Sofa.
3: A valuation procedure machine. Shuttle set for watch. Airlock will be opened in really open. 3... 2... 1...